This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. Art of Darkness. Back with a core episode. I'm Kevin Kautzman, and I'm joined by the mad, the cruel Michigander himself, Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good, dude. How are you doing? I am doing okay. I have been yeah. wandering through the mind of a great artist of the 20th century, a great thinker of the theater. Antonine Artaud, our subject for the evening. And thank goodness I don't have to do this alone. We've enlisted the help of a, of a friend of the show who I think you want to introduce, Brad. Yeah, we're bringing back Adam, Adam Lehrer. He, for you know, fans of the show, he joined us, I don't know, six months ago or something like that to talk about William S. Burroughs um, and has kindly brought, uh, kindly accepted the invitation to come back on and help us out with a core episode. So Adam, uh, thanks for putting in the work. Um, for people who are new to Adam, um, Adam is the mastermind behind safety propaganda, one of the best uh, things happening on the Twitter sphere and, and elsewhere. Um, uh, an amazing sort of, well, I'm going to let you describe that in a second after I, I pump you up about a couple other things. Uh, author behind one of my favorite books to come out in the last couple of years, which is Communions. Uh, we talked about that a bit on the previous episode. Fantastic book. Um, and uh, host with the most behind the show, System of Systems, as well as sort of a uh, what I think is rapidly becoming a role as a kind of a linchpin of the, I would just call it the redacted literary scene. So, yeah. Sounds <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thumbs it up, press. The less that's said about that, the better at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, Brad, your episode, I was going to put it up this morning. Yeah. But um, I forgot to edit out the shit I talked about John Sinclair. And I really didn't want to be the guy who outs the great uh, manager of the MC5 as a guy who shits his pants at a record store. Yeah. So best <laughs> I guess I'm just... doing it again. Right yeah. now. <laughs> I'm anyways. not editing anything. This is uh, all going in. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, but yeah, it'll be up. It'll be up. Cool. Uh, it's right. next tomorrow morning. Cool. And interestingly enough, second time I'm on the show and also the second character from communions that i'm talking about here That's because right. of our toe uh, one of my favorite chapters is that which i fictionalize uh, our toe's late life friendship with mr jacques prevel a struggling poet um, who became his opium and morphine procurer because the uh, doctors at the hospital weren't l letting uh, our get high anymore oh. so Doctors, man. Come on. 
Arto did not like the psychiatrists. We're going to get no. into it. This episode is going to go long. We also have a treat in the middle of the episode, which we recorded last evening with my little theater company, uh, Badmouth Theater Company. It's at badmouthtc.com. We recorded a reading of one of our toes, very short plays. We'll play that when the time is right in this episode. But let's start with the classic Art of Darkness question, which I have to ask Brad, because Adam and I, in the, in the schizophrenic spirit of our toe, are going to split duties here. I'm going to endeavor to... Uh, the podcast this... and its double, right? <laughs> Indeed, like the that? podcast and its yeah. double. That's okay. right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I'm going to endeavor to give the kind of a fairly complete spine of his biography. This is one of those artists who we could devote an entire season of a podcast to. We could do 10 episodes and not exhaust uh, our toe, but we're going to do our best to give you a comprehensive picture with an emphasis on the work itself, uh, in addition, of course, to his, to his life. But let's start with the classic question, which is, Brad, what do you know about Antonin Artaud? Honestly, I know very little. I read the chapter in Adam's book, Communions. Uh, I had maybe read the intro paragraph to the Wikipedia page. And we recorded a little bit from one of his plays yesterday. That's pretty much the extent. So what do I know about him? Uh, he's involved in the theater. I understand that his involvement in the theater and his theorizing about uh, the theater um, is also influ influential on cinema. Um, I, his dates, I, I'm assuming he died like in the 20s or 30s or 40s is my guess, uh, which I guess is a pretty wide range. Um, that's about it, really. I don't know a whole lot. I know he's a, he's a pretty interesting looking guy. <laughs> he's perhaps the arch example, and he died in 48, Brad. Uh, oh, he, you, you, were, you were right. You were right. You're at the tail end. Uh, he lived to see the war, the second war. I mean, he lived through World War I, and then he sort of lived to see World War II, uh, at least the, the beginning of it. Um, uh, he is sort of the arch example of somebody who had A-list good looks, movie star good looks. If you want to see him, if you don't want to do anything else with our toe after this episode, and, and I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> I, this, is a, this is Art of Darkness. This, is a, this, this character is not going to be for everybody, for sure. But that's part of his, his brilliance. Um, I would encourage you to watch, if you don't know it, The Passion of Joan of Arc the great uh, piece of, of uh, cinema will come to it, but he has a rather prominent role and he is a hottie. He is yeah. a stud. He's an A-list looking guy. And then by the end of his life, he's, he's done a lot of drugs. I'm sure Adam, Adam will have a lot to say about this as well. Done all drugs for a long time. Don't do heroin kids. Don't do drugs because he ends up looking like a complete goblin. Like, embarrassed. I, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, I don't mean to make light of it, but he definitely, he had problems and we're going to get into it. But if you want to, I don't think there's a, a greater example of somebody who sort of naturally had these good looks and then almost becomes unrecognizable by... by Val the, Kilmer, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's... 
Yeah, there's some some other examples. But, Val uh, Kilmer, I guess, got old in a more normal way, right? He just yeah, like mm-hmm. gained some weight, stopped getting as much work. Antonin Artaud literally looks disintegrated by the end of his life. Yeah, indeed. Oof. Yeah, Oof. yeah, and his physical looks mirror uh, his, I think, his mental state to a degree. And we're going to get right into it. We're going to dig in. So I think let's just start. uh, And so, oh, before I do, I have to tease the Patreon. Uh, For people who subscribe to our Patreon, it's at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. I think the first tier is like, it starts at $3. If If you can't afford $3 a month, I don't know what's what you're doing, what you're even doing online. Like if you're listening to this show and we know you're out there, we're tracking our numbers. We're approaching 10,000 streams on uh, Spotify, which is not nothing. That's just Spotify alone. Uh, so we know you're out there. We know you're listening. We also know that you're binging because I can tell that people are like listening to multiple episodes. So if you're one of those people, I don't want to guilt trip you, but if, but if you could chuck three bucks at the, at the show, you get an extra after dark episode at the end of every episode, we record an additional 20 or 30 minutes. And these after dark episodes, we cut loose a little bit. Brad has been known to rap on them. Uh, <laughs> I rapped on one sort of. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. It well, wasn't pretty. That's a very special thing, Brad. That's, that's definitely worth three bucks a month. Indefinitely. Uh, I'll but, people. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm right. so fucking annoyed by my fans not paying. Like <laughs> right. seriously, I guess. Yeah fucking 20 notifications a day you have another free subscriber for safety propaganda bitch i'm putting out the best fucking (laughs) online magazine on the internet and you still refuse to part with any goddamn money i mean yeah i get it i should probably get a real job but i don't want to all right (laughs) i'd have less less time to do this stuff that's a great pitch Pay us, but go to patreon.com slash art of dark pod. And the story that we're saving for today's uh, uh, after dark is going to be twofold. I'm going to read a portion of his final radio play uh, to have done with the judgment of God. And I believe my theater company may take this on later this year. So that'll be something. But the real, I think, juicy piece is that we're going to dig deeper into our toes magic spells which he would draw and write and burn with cigarettes if he was trying to target somebody and make somebody suffer he was sort of doing this like this sort of black magic and uh right. we're going to talk about a magic spell that he sent to hitler in 1939 oh <laughs> so, wow oh yeah. man i am on board drug you got drugs magic that's all i need really i'm i'm hooked cinema I'm yeah, it, yeah, oh, that's good yeah, too. It's it's all happening. So that's at patreon.com slash art of dark pod. So let's get into the bio. Antoine Marie Joseph Paul Artaud, better known as Antonine Artaud, was born on the 4th of September, 1896. He was a French writer, poet, dramatist, visual artist, essayist, actor, and theater director. He's widely re- uh, recognized as one of the major figures of the European avant-garde. He had a a dalliance with the Surrealists. More than a dalliance, he had an affair with the Surrealists, and I'm sure we'll get into it. Um, In particular, he had a profound influence on 20th century theater through his conceptualization of the theater of cruelty. And that throws people off because the term cruelty seems to suggest something terrible might be happening to the audience, and maybe it is. I I tend to think of it as a, um, what he means is a, a total theater. 
an immersive theater, a theater that is unrelenting, a theater that does not let the audience off the, off the hook, a theater that is not literary, that is not psychological, a theater that is raw and intense. And we're going to get into this and, and I'm sure read from his seminal book of essays, uh, The Theater and Its Double. Uh, he, known for his raw, surreal, and transgressive works, and that word transgressive is an understatement. You're going to see. Uh, his texts explored themes from the cosmologies of ancient cultures, philosophy, the occult, mysticism, and indigenous Mexican and Balinese practices. So I want to begin at the end here with um, a reading from Arto the Momo. And I have all my Arto books here. Let me grab my, you might hear a little bit of shuffling around as I, as I grab my, my books. Brad, are you excited? You ready? I am. Yeah. It's always a good sound. I like hearing the paper shuffle on a podcast. Honestly, it makes me feel <laughs> like the hosts, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they, for they, sure. They, they so, so before I continue to kind of rock the, the bio, I just, I just kind of feel like it's, it's helpful to begin at the end and work our way back through the biography of the man who would write what I'm about to um, read to you. This was, this was written in January of 1948 and he would, he would pass away, I believe, in March of 48. So this was very, very late. And I'm reading from Arto the Momo. And some context for what this is, Arto the Momo is Antonin Arto's uh, most extraordinary poetic work of the brief final phase of his life from his return to Paris from a nine-year incarceration in France's psychiatric institutions in 1946 um, until his death in 1948. So he worked on this for a couple of years. The work is an unprecedented anatomical excavation carried through in vocal language envisioning new gestural futures for the human body in its splintered fragments while also generating black humor illuminations into Artaud's own status as the scorned Marseille-born child fool, the Momo, a self-naming that fascinated Jacques Derrida in his writings on this work. So Artaud would call himself the Momo, the child fool. Uh, so let me read this. It, it has a five-part sequence. It ends with Artaud's caustic denunciation of psychi psychiatric institutions and of the very conception of madness itself. I think as we go along here, we're going to see that we live in a world that Artaud predicted. Mm -hmm. Artaud, in a funny way, conceived of and, and predicted the world that we inhabit now with the madhouses all shut. Uh, let's see... Mm -hmm. So I have 101. So well, from Marseille, he was born in Marseille, you said? Yes, and we're going to get, we yeah. will okay. get to that. That's an interesting so, place. <laughs> yes, it is, isn't it? Um, so this is a very short thing that I want to read, but I just think this is lovely. Um, oh, and of course, by the way, I don't think any of us three are, uh, are French speakers, correct? I mean, so all humility, we are... Uh, English speakers endeavoring to, to tackle a, a great French writer. So we'll, we'll do our best uh, for the Anglos. Um, so here he writes, a blank page to separate the text of the book, which is finished from all the swarming of Bardo, which appears in the limbo of electroshock. And in this limbo, a special typography, which is there to abject God, to background the verbal words to which one wanted to attribute a special value. He's talking about the blank page and the bardo. I just thought, and then after that, there's a blank page. Yeah. 
Yeah. So this is this is an artist who, at the end of his life, and 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 I think we'll see as we move along. He was obsessed with form, and with uh, yeah, form. Um, so we'll come back to that as we go. I just wanted to give a little taste of where he was at at the end. So back to the bio. Uh, Anthony Artaud was born in Marseille to Euphrasie Nalpas and Antoine Roy Artaud. His parents were first cousins. His grandmothers and sisters from Smyrna, modern-day Izmir, Turkey. His paternal grandmother, Catherine Chile, was raised in Marseille, where she married Marius Artaud, a Frenchman. His maternal grandmother, Mariette Chile, grew up in Smyrna, where she married Louis Nalpas, a local ship chandler. He was throughout his life greatly affected by his Greek ancestry. What is a, a ship chandler, Brad? Do you know? Isn't a chandler somebody who makes candles? No, this says it's a retail dealer who specializes in providing supplies or equipment for ships. Yeah, yeah uh, probably a guy who works at a port and sells them what they need. Yeah. That makes sense um, for Marseille, Marseille, which of course is one of the great European ports. Another intriguing thing I would just point out really quick about his parents being cousins is he had a real uh, hang-up about incest of all stripes throughout his life. Uh, In particular, he was uh, having a bizarre affair with with Anais Nin. Oh, yeah. And um, apparently he never fucked her because he couldn't get hard from all the junk he was on. But she would just, like, suck his, like, soft dick all the time oh geez but uh he called it off because of that weird i don't know if you guys know about this but anais nan had like a very fucked up sexual relationship with her dad yes and yeah. it just like he just couldn't deal with it he didn't want to deal with like that psychic damage associated with it yeah yeah, yeah. It, you know he picked up on a lot of energy and i think he yeah. just found some dark energy there well there was, yeah, <laughs> with her for sure. That'll be an episode <laughs> to do in the future. And of course, when we present Spurt of Blood to you, incest is right at the heart of that, oh, that yeah. script. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. interesting. It, it comes from the family. So one of the books that I'm going to reference here and uh, be reading from, because I'm, I'm leaning on the Wikipedia bio and then a, um, a bio from uh, biography.yourdictionary.com just for, for the spine of the bio. Uh, because otherwise we would we would never get through it. Uh, but I have a book called uh, Critical Lives, Antonin uh, Artaud, David uh, A. Schaefer. So I'm going to be reading from this here. Uh, so this is just a, a bit from Artaud himself. The civil status of the man I am, Antonin Artaud, problematically bears 4 September 1896 at 8 o'clock in the morning as his date of birth. And... As place of my entry into this life, Marseille, Bouche du Rhone, France, four rue, rue du Jardin de Plantes, on the fourth floor. However, I object to all this. I needed <laughs> more time. I mean, tangible, real, verified, actual, authentic time to become the edgy and irrepressible asshole that I am. <laughs> so, so this is that. a man this is a man who in the great tradition of true artists made himself yeah well that's I, that's i mean i can't even remember who said this now but there's a quote sort of about being an artist that i love and it's it's an artist is one is one who protests reality itself right so that's what he's sort of saying there is like yes i what did he say i reject all of that 
I yes. Yeah. I object to all. I object to all that. It's just biographical yeah. details. I love that. Yeah. But not even in a way that was like, I mean, there's people who, there's like political thinkers who certainly reject reality as it exists. He mm-hmm. also rejected reality as it was prophesized, predicted, or, or organized to achieve. He hated all of it. He thought mm-hmm. commies were, uh, you know, petty bourgeois LARPing fools. He thought anarchists were buffoons. He thought even, uh, he thought most right-wingers were idiots, but yeah. he, he really just hated um, he hated having to think about anything that was like actually in existence. He's kind of like very anti-Hegelian in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. And it, you know, it's, it's all about a rejection of the material world and an embrace of the unseen. I love that. Yeah. And the, the yeah. theater is uniquely poised to tackle that as yeah. the, as the mirror to reality. Uh, and I love, and of course I'm a, playwright and a devotee of, of Artaud when I sit down to write, I do think about his ideas of the theater of cruelty uh, every time. So, you know, and there are some of us who do, and there are some of us who don't, but uh, I'm certainly of that school. So continuing with the, with the bio, Euphrasy gave birth to nine children, uh, but four were stillborn. So that's a lot of suffering. And two others died in childhood. Terrible. So three of nine survived. Arto, I mean, and let's just pause to reflect on what that does to mother and how obviously it's a very different time, but I don't think the agony is any, no, that's any pain that's, by that. That's a lot of pain, pain and a lot of pressure for the, for the surviving children, I would say. Arto was diagnosed with meningitis at age five, a disease which had no cure at the time. So meningitis is a chronic inflammation of the protective membranes covering the brain and spinal cord. Uh, The most common symptoms are fever, headache, and neck uh, stiffness. Other symptoms include confusion, altered consciousness, nausea, vomiting, and an inability to tolerate light or loud noises. Children often exhibit only nonspecific symptoms such as irritability, drowsiness, or poor feeding. So at five, he's dealing with uh, a pretty pretty severe disease. Oh, that's, that's really, people die from that now. I mean, Mm -hmm. not nearly in high numbers, but wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Terrible. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're citing Schaefer. Uh, he points out given the frequency of such misdiagnoses coupled with the absence of a treatment and consequent near minimal survival rate and the symptoms he had, it's unlikely that our toe actually contracted it. So Schaefer saying maybe he didn't in fact have it, but it's, it's interesting and, and telling because he must've had a set of symptoms. He must've had some things uh, bothering him as a, as a child. Um, yeah. So let's get ourselves situated in, in time. I think that's very helpful for, for art of darkness. I get to put my, my modest history degree to use. Uh, so he was born in 1896. So now we're moving forward to 1907, careening toward the Great War. Not there yet, but moving toward it. Uh, from 1907 to 1914, so through the, through the war, Artaud attended the College Sacre-Cœur, Uh, where he began reading works by Rimbaud, Mallarmé, and Edgar Allan Poe. And I think that's a, that trifecta is a very handy, I don't know Mallarmé, but obviously Poe and Rimbaud, I think that's a pretty clear lineage for, for Artaud. Yeah, Uh, Mallarmé too. 
Mm. Yeah, I don't know his work. Do you? Can you describe it? Do you have? He's one of the key figures of the decadent movement, along with Hoismans. Um, also very concerned with magic. Also very influential on people who are like uh, Walter Benjamin and Maurice Blanchot, and some of the early twentieth century avant-gardists. Um, I haven't read a ton of his work, but I have read uh, this novel of his. I'll try to get the English translation really quick. But is it um, Un Coup de Day? Yeah, yeah, that one. And mm. um, yeah, he was he was fantastic. I'm really into the symbolist movement, which sort of is the precursor to the surrealist movement. Um, you know, first guys starting to play a little around with the occult in a way that wasn't just for uh, pictorial or decorative art, um, but for painting and as well as for literature, you know. And it's cool because there's a lot of guys that would be considered like horror writers, such as um, Arthur McKen, that were yeah. also part of the symbolist movement. Um, so just a lot of freaked out, you know, tops artists of the time. And uh, all of those guys had a huge impact on on the surrealist movement and uh, Dada, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to know that there's sort of like an occult movement uh, apparently going on in France. Similar time, there's yeah. sort of an occult movement going on in, in, in London, an occult movement going on in yeah. Dublin. I don't know how much these groups all talked to each other, but like it was, it was happening, you know? There yeah, was, yeah, yeah. I have some of it... Um, I wrote about it a little bit in my uh, the Safety Propaganda Manifesto, which is like, you know, my aesthetic theory, soon to be a book, by the way. Oh, excellent. Um, excellent. Yeah. Look to that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much happening at this point in history. Like, industrialization is rocketing along. A new class system is being formed. Uh, lots of revolutionary changes, some good, some bad. Mm -hmm. And I think with that engenders a certain interest in um, the occult and macabre mm -hmm. sort of outside forces. I, and it might be it might be because of the information, the Twitter silos that I'm in that I've algorithmically you know assigned myself. But it seems like there's a similar upswelling of occult interest at least now. Yeah. Um, yeah, so maybe wonders what what you think if there's patterns between now and say 1910, and I think there yeah, probably it are. It does seem like a uh, a tried and true petty bourgeois pastime during moments of great uh, social political stress. Yeah. You know, it yeah. all seems fucking hopeless and kind of unknowable. So you're right. like, oh, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe, right. maybe, maybe <laughs> magic is the only thing that right. matters. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. That, what a great uh, little interlude there, Adam, proving why we had you on for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Super why helpful. Why the big bucks? Yeah. There no, it is. No, there no it help is. for my fucking fans off. <laughs> Come on, guys uh, and gals. <laughs> So, yeah, I know I knew that name, but I wasn't familiar with his work. So that's a little bit of a black hole for me. And I'm going to fill that black hole later. I'm going to do yeah. some reading. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and now, like our friend Adam Lehrer, uh, Arto also founded a private literary magazine in collaboration with his friends. So he has a very, uh, very early interest in uh, letters. Um, at the end of college, uh, he, oh, where did my, why are there a bunch of blank pages? 
Yeah, I was just wondering that myself. But if you scroll hmm. down to page, oh, th well, th there you go. That's what happens when uh, you start doing our toe. Uh, yeah, strange shit happens. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. totally bizarre. I wonder how that yeah. happened. Okay, spooky, ooky spooky. Let me let me uh, picks up on page eleven. Yeah, let me just delete all these blank pages. That's so interesting because we began the reading. Uh, or the uh, the podcast with a reading of the Momo where he talks about the blank page, and then here we very get a bunch of random. Strange. Oh, that's man. very bizarre. I wonder how that happened. Yeah. Okay, uh, at the end of college, <laughs> moving on. At the when end, of something college, weird happens, Kevin. You just ignore it. That's that's. <laughs> that's yeah, like. man. Hey, yeah. look, I'm not. Very I'm <laughs> not in Marseille. I'm not in Paris. I'm in Minnesota. We ignore it and move yeah. on. That's that's right. <laughs> just push push through it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So let's see. Uh, at the end of college, he started to noticeably withdraw from social life and destroyed most of his written work and gave away his books, which is very curious because as we see, as we're going to see, as we explore our toe, he had a very, very uh, complicated relationship with the written word particularly as it relates to the theater. So he described like, his- You mean like physically on the page word? His, his attitude toward theater, which we will see, is that it was, he felt it was far too literary and okay. far yeah. too psychological and that the true theater was gestural and a scream would say more than a Hamlet monologue. Yeah. Okay. Sort of his, his, okay. his idea. Uh, so... Yeah, distressed, his parents arranged for him to see a psychiatrist. Over the next five years, Artaud was admitted to a series of sanatoria. So we're already being institutionalized. There was a pause in his treatment in 1916 when he was conscripted into the French army. He was discharged due to an unspecified health reason, which is my favorite reason to get discharged. Uh, Artaud would later claim it was due to sleepwalking, while his mother described uh, ascribed it to his nervous condition. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how fit Artaud would have been for battle. I don't mm. know. He, he doesn't strike me as a uh, the guy you want in the trench next to you. In May 1919, <laughs> the director of the sanatorium prescribed laudanum for Artaud, precipitating a lifelong addiction to that and other opiates. So in that way, also a man of our time, he'd fit right yeah. in here in the United States. Uh, in March, 1921, Artaud uh, moved to Paris where he was put under the psychiatric care of Dr. Edouard Toulouse, who took him in as a boarder. So he moves to Paris. He makes it to the big city. You're going to make it, kid. You're going to come to the big city, but he moves in with his psychiatrist. Oh, this boy. is the kind of person that we, that we have uh, here. So um, Adam, anything, anything to say up top about the laudanum, about the, the, uh, the opiates here? Yeah. I mean, just the fact, you know, he was living at a time when he could still get this stuff over the counter. If I had been alive back then, I would have been a fucking incurable junkie. Can you imagine like just going to the goddamn drugstore and being like, yeah, I'm, I'm in withdrawal. I need morphine. And that would be like, you know, two francs or whatever for right. supply. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think Arto, you know, the way I, I, the way I wrote about it is Arto, someone like him who's so sort of innately cosmic, 
uh, probably racked with anxiety all the goddamn time and just a sense of unease. I think it makes a lot of sense that, um, you know, the, the common misconception is that, you know, you would use heroin to sort of emancipate your thought. But in fact, I think it actually helped to tether himself to reality a bit more than he would have been able to otherwise sort of kept his energy intact, you know, hmm. so he could actually go somewhat about his day. And I think that's pretty true for a lot of artists like Anna Cabin, who we talked about before. Um, it's not a drug for like, it's not LSD, you know, it's about, it's about quieting the inside. And I think that was probably the case for him. Yeah, that seems, seems reasonable. Well, so I have the, the biography broken down into some distinct periods and we're coming up to a biggie, uh, which is 1921 to 1935 in gay Paris in Paris. Uh, and so he at least initially is living with his doctor as a boarder and he gravitated toward the theater. Uh, in Paris, he worked with a number of celebrated French teacher directors. Um, I'm not going to name all these names, but he worked with um, quite a few of these folks. And there was one named Lunier Poe who gave Artaud his first work in a professional theater. Uh, she, I think it's a she, would de later describe Artaud as a painter lost in the midst of actors. I assume that that actually might be a, uh, that, that must be a fellow. Um, so that's an interesting description. Artaud as a painter lost in the midst of actors. Uh, his core theatrical training was as part of a person named Dullin's troupe, the Theatre de l'Atelier, which he joined in 1921. He remained a member uh, for 18 months. In this capacity, he trained for 10 to 12 hours a day. This is not a LARP. This is serious business. We have to imagine the place of theater in the 20s in Paris bears no resemblance to any existing theatrical practice uh, in, in serious. the present day. It's serious, serious business. So this would be like the equivalent of becoming maybe like an influencer or something like that would maybe have the same intensity going to move into an influencer house and try to get 2 million TikTok views. Right. Uh, it's deadly serious, but it's immediate. It's local. There's no mediation. It's happening live. And I believe it's Artaud who has one of my favorite quotes about actors. He said, actors must be athletes of the heart. That's pretty Something good. like that. I love that quote. And that's 100% my experience in acting. That's, that's true. Yeah. Uh, if you're really doing it seriously, if you're not LARPing, uh, you go through real things. And uh, the great actors do it two times a day for years. Yeah, uh, yeah it's interesting. I just saw... Um, the adaptation that just came out of Balzac's Lost Delusions. Um, and it's primarily adapting the second book in that three book series, all of which takes place in theater and journalism and specifically journalism about theater. And it takes place in Balzac's times, probably like 1820s, 1830s. But um, every level of theater at this point in Paris is, you know, from like low trashy kind of theater all the way to the high end, it's all, people are going to these shows every fucking night. So like these people are, they're stars, they're local stars. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's just nothing comparable, 
now, uh, really. Um, so originally Arto was a strong proponent of Dullin's teaching, stating, hearing Dullin teach, I feel that I'm rediscovering ancient secrets and a whole forgotten mystique of production. That presages what he, maybe he was projecting a little there. That's what he's looking for, right? That's what he wants. In particular, they, they shared a strong interest in East Asian theater, specifically performance traditions from Bali and Japan. Dullin, however, did not think Western theater should be adopting the language and style of East Asian theater. Instead, he promoted a theater of transposition. For Dullin, to want to impose on our Western theater rules of a theater of a long tradition which has its own symbolic language would be a great mistake. Artaud came to disagree with this. Their final disagreement was over his performance of the Emperor Charlemagne and Alexandre Arnaud's Juan de Bordeaux, and he left the troupe in 1923. Uh, he went on to join the troupe of a person named Patoff in 1923. He remained with them through the next year when he would put more focus on his work in the cinema. As he, this is happening, uh, he was having a love affair with a woman named Atanazao, and I want to get into his sort of relationship to women uh, and to sex. And I'm going to be reading from the Critical Lives. I'm going to introduce this, this woman, Atanazao, uh, which is such an unusual name. Uh, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. So forgive me if you're Rom Romanian. Um, born in Bucharest, Romania, nearly four months to the day after Arto, Atanazao immigrated to France in 1919 to pursue an acting career. By most accounts, she was the first and perhaps only woman with whom Artaud was intimate. Well, now, clearly, it sounds like he, he was getting these uh, ineffective blowjobs from, from Anais Nin. Um, so uh, he must have had other affairs, but this seems to have been a really intense one, so I want to focus on it. Young Love. Their relationship lasted until 1927, when she could no longer withstand Artaud's idiosyncratic, to say the least, views on sex and his addiction to opiates. Nonetheless, their letters reveal an intimacy and tenderness that is often lost in the larger Artaud story. Artaud's passion and longing for Atanasau when the two were separated also expressed the ideas at the core of his being. In July of 1922, he wrote to her, more and more I need you now more than ever. It appears as though I am separated from my body. I have become a little child again, as when my mother was everything to me, and I could not separate myself from her. Now you have become her, so indispensable, and before you I am yet more innocent than at that time. So he certainly uh, had quite a, um, a feeling. Uh, I want to read just another little bit of this. On the 19th of December, 1922, the Theatre de l'Atelier premiered Jean Cocteau's adaptation of Antigone, featuring decorative pieces, including masks, masks designed by Picasso, costumes by Coco Chanel, and music by Arthur Herniger. So we're, we're in some very yeah, that's pretty rare, cool. rare yeah. company here. Yeah. Uh, I was watching uh, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast last night. I, I finally signed up for the Criterion Collection streaming, and I'm very glad I did. Uh, so Artaud appeared as Tiresias, the blind prophet of Thebes. Just before the production opened, Artaud wrote enthusiastically about its novelty and later recalled when he was in Mexico a decade later, he recalled Atanasau's performance in the lead role. Moans, 
came from times beyond, as if carried by the froth of a wave on the Mediterranean Sea, on a day drenched by the sun. This is like the music of the flesh extending towards chilly darkness. This was effectively the voice of the ancient Greek. When I, it saw the Minotaur suddenly crystallize at the bottom of Minos's labyrinth in the virginal flesh. Whoa. So he was, he was obsessed with this gal. He, well, I mean, it's obsessed with her, but it also I get from that obsessed with performance, right? Obsessed with the theater, obviously, but like, wow, that was, that was really cool. <laughs> yeah. He's a real, a real lover of the theater. Uh, yeah. and again, in a way that I don't think probably anybody today could really replicate because of the, um, just the social, the social milieu and the reality of what it is. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe somewhere in Europe it's happening, uh, but it's certainly not in America. America's never had a theater like this no. at full stop. Um, so in 1923, Artaud mailed some of his poems to the journal La Nouvelle Revue Francaise. So I'm just going to call that NRF, uh, the new review Francais, the new French review. Uh, they were rejected but the author of the poems intrigued the editor, Jacques Riviere, who requested a meeting. After meeting via post, they continued their relationship. Ah, they, they became mutuals on the Bird website. <laughs> uh, where I am, I am on a week-long suspension for replying to somebody. I'm going I'm to vent, guys. Yeah, I, for, for replying to somebody who was posting about New Hampshire, which is a state that I love. And I replied, live free or fucking die. And I got <laughs> suspended for a week. That's for harassment speech. and abuse, for for throwing an f bomb into the New Hampshire state motto in a positive way, replying to yeah. somebody about New Hampshire. The unreal. Uh, this is that's what happened to Amy Therese as well. Um, back in like way back in 2019, she said Elizabeth Warren needs to be beat. She meant politically, but the yeah. algorithm picked it up as like she needs to be beat to death. Oh my so god! That, that was the beginning of that whole era. Oh my god. Uh, so Twitter thinks I'm saying fucking die. No, I'm saying yeah, live free exactly. war. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, AI is never going to replace. So if I'm quiet on Twitter for the next week, you know why. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Lots of fun. You know, in a funny way, I'm just going to take it as a break. Anyway. Sure, uh, but it's still ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, well, so and he, there's an irony. Yeah. So, I mean, there's... Uh, it's, oh, it's perfect. Well, to point it again, out. once yeah. again, Kafka was a, Kafka was a hack. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Jacques Riviere, they became friends. Uh this is very interesting. The compilation of the letters that they wrote together, uh, or that he wrote, rather, Artaud wrote to Jacques Riviere, uh, became an epistolary work, Correspondence avec Jacques Riviere, was Artaud's first major publication. So uh, this is another world to imagine where your letters to a buddy could become yeah. a literary event in this right world totally alien to to what we have now um Artaud would continue to publish some of his most important work in the nrf and we're jumping forward here but the first manifesto for the theater of cruelty which would come in the 30s early 30s and the theater and the plague in 33 and we're going to read from both of those uh he published these in nrf and uh these would eventually become the theater and its double which is his seminal writing on theater and performance and the plague and everything. And if you read nothing by Artaud, you must read the theater and it's double. It's a book of essays. Uh, I want to read a little bit. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying very, very, very interesting. The theater and the, the theater and the plague. 
Oh, we're going to get into it. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah. The plague is theatrical and theater uh, is like unto a plague. That is the concept. And I think after watching, the, as soon as the dancing nurses showed up on TikTok, I said, <laughs> ah, this is our toe. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is what he means. Yeah. Plague as theater. Very, very strange. Yeah, it's like the plague is a place where political structures just dissolute uncontrollably. Everything mm-hmm. dissolutes. Everything comes undone. That should be what the theater is. Ah, yeah. Indeed, yes. And that's what the plague is like. And of course, we've just lived through that. So I don't have to explain that essay to anybody, I hope, because it's clear, it's crystal clear to me that COVID had plenty of theatrics. Six yeah. feet of social distance, right. wear your right. mask. Where right. do we wear masks? We oh, wear yeah. masks in the theater. I even like uh, fired off a tweet. Like, you know, if Arto says the plague, is the place where political structures uncontrollably crumble and dissolute, then perhaps the threat of a plague that never metastasizes is perfect for dissoluting society in a way that is utterly controlled. Right, right. Ah, nice. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> so Artaud is writing to Riviere here, and in a poem that he attached to a letter called Cry, Artaud wrote presumably of himself, the little lost poet abandoned his celestial position with an otherworldly idea pressed to his hairy heart. Two traditions met, but our padlocked thoughts do not have the space and experience to begin again. And Riviere finally answered uh, Artaud two months later, and at Artaud's prompting, renewed his accusations of artificiality. One thing strikes me, the contrast between the extraordinary precision of your self-diagnosis and the vague or at least the shapelessness of your efforts. Ultimately, Riviere acknowledged the sincerity of Artaud's mental erosion, but cautioned him against allowing his mind too much time to wander, too much autonomy, and not enough structure. In his penultimate letter to Artaud, Riviere broached the idea of publishing their correspondence, but doing so under fictitious names. According to, uh, or rather responding to Riviere, Artaud affirmed that he too thought the letters publishable, but rejected the idea of using false names. He wants to be a face cuck, (laughs) claiming it would give the reader the impression that the whole correspondence had been manufactured. Of course, if published under a pseudonym, Artaud would be deprived of the distinction of being published by Riviere. Hmm. Artaud made reference to the psychological damage suffered by his generation but nonetheless viewed his turmoil as unique. Quoting Artaud, I can truly say that I am not in this world, and this is not simply intellectual posturing. In his last letter to Artaud, Riviere finally struck empathetic chords, admitting to suffering the pangs of self-doubt Artaud had continuously expressed, but conceding that Artaud experienced a more profound torment, the annihilation of the soul. If it was any consolation, Riviere offered a ray of hope for Artaud's creative output. Quoting, Who does not know depression? Who has never felt the soul impaired by the body, invaded by its weakness, is incapable of perceiving any truth from, of the nature of man? So that's quite, a, um, uh, quite an exchange of letters between these two men. Uh, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to cite that... Uh, to give an idea of his state of mind. And I want to read one more little bit here. Uh, 
The exchange of letters between the aspiring, though tortured poet and the doyen of avant-garde Parisian literature provides a remarkable window in our, into Artaud's state of being. It is possible that for Artaud, Riviere was more than simply a renowned mentor and prospective publisher. Instead, he was a surrogate father for Artaud, yet another substitute for the biological one who, his son believed, did not listen to and could not understand him. During his correspondence with Riviere, Artaud continuously wrote to uh, Atanazau, the, his lover. The letters are often heartbreaking and tender in their declarations of desire, longing, pain, and sorrow without discussing his correspondence with Riviere or confiding in Atanasau his difficulties in expressing himself. Throughout much of the period between May of 1923 and April of 1924, Artaud and Atanasau were apart. He was in the south of France when she was in Paris, and she was in Romania when he was in Paris. The letters reference Artaud's physical separation from Atanasau and the accompanying emptiness he felt. However, Artaud also wrote in July of 1923 of being physically out of sorts, of a, quoting, sensation of numbness, of separation of myself from each of my limbs, from my organs, that when I touch myself, I don't have the feeling to touch me, myself, but to encounter a conscious wall that gives me the sensation of being a skeleton with neither skin nor flesh, or rather a living void. Yes, which wow. is, of course, the one of the pieces of text from which Deleuze conceptualized his philosophical terminology of the body without organs, which essentially... Oh. Um, you know, it comes from Anti-Oedipus, which is um, Deleuze and Guattari's assault on the Oedipal structure of psychoanalysis and also as a way of discussing schizophrenia, the body without organs is essentially, it's a very hard concept to sort of narrow down with language, but it essentially refers to the body as a, as, as a prison. Um, from which we have certain limitations. So to be the body without organs is to divorce yourself from the limitations of the body to become this infinite sort of being. For Deleuze, that was the schizophrenic. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's the best thing about that's Artaud it. is just like his fucking language is everywhere throughout the 20th century in every medium the guy's thought is felt yeah um, interesting now I, yeah i did not uh, I, i'm not that deep on Deleuze, but i did not know about that connection to arto now the that this letter this description of his sort of mental state is fascinating to me and i don't doubt that he has an incredibly unique perspective but how much of that do we think we might be able to attribute to his his drug addiction I mean, how much of that is a brilliant mind articulating that, that feeling that, you know, so many millions of people since him have, have kind of gone through? I don't think it was the drugs so much. Okay. I yeah. think the drugs, if anything, were just his like thing that he used to treat this sort of feeling that he always had. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Like, I don't want to say Artaud was mad either. That's kind of like an easy way out that I think a lot of people, a lot of historians would just be like, he was, um, he was schizophrenic, he was mad. I don't right. necessarily think so. I think he had one of those like rare brains that we should 
cryogenically freeze and study kind of things because the way he thought and felt the world was so specific and fascinating. Like, um, when I first got into Arto, it was actually via Deleuze because I was going through my whole like reading political philosophy stage, becoming a, you know, petty bourgeois, radical LARPer, etc. And I kept hearing this guy's name come up, uh, Arto. I'd see him in Deleuze. I saw him in Derrida, who I don't like that much. And then, um, and then like a few artists, uh, like Nancy Spiro, um, did a bunch of drawings about him. And I just was like, I got to finally read this guy. And then I read, read him my first time when I was like 25 and I read everything by him, like right in a row. I've never been so thoroughly addicted to writing before. Like it's, it's so like genreless. It's not, it's not just philosophy. It's not just like skitzed out essays. It's not just fiction or poetry. It's just kind of like in its own category and encompasses. It's like, it's the body without organs, you know, it's, mm. it's pushing language past its own capacity or something. Right. Which is fascinating for a guy who sort of ends up being, would we say disillusioned by language in a way well just absolutely spoken language or written language right because yeah. because language is still part of that prison the prison of the body right the that's last, the thing that needs the to last be guard yeah yeah get exactly, past. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. interesting yeah huh very cool i well I, once again i'm getting uh i'm getting our toe pilled i say once <laughs> again because every time we cover a subject who i don't know and this is one it, Arto and Sarah Kane have probably been the two that I've been the least oh, familiar with. Oh, God. I was just like and, uh, thinking about her because she really did. She probably did with theater what Arto wanted to do, you know, mm -hmm. but w didn't really have like the technical capacity to achieve it yet. Like, right. I got, I wrote a thing about her a couple of years ago because I, I, like, right before the pandemic, I read her book of plays. She's mm. fucking incredible. Yeah, and that is. shit is disturbing. It is. It's legitimately disturbing. And I got that vibe that, that, I got that vibe from Spurt of Blood that, like, oh, yeah, this is Sarah Kane kind of amped up because it, no one's trying to produce this. So you, you, you don't have that, even that right. limitation. But it's, yeah, it's her. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, have you ever staged a Sarah Kane play? I've never staged a Sarah Kane play, but when I lived in, in London for a period of time, my, my then wife studied at the neuroscience at the hospital where Sarah Kane hanged herself. And I went into the, the Royal Court Young Writers Program. So I had, and you, you don't go there without then becoming kind of familiar with Sarah Kane, her work, what it meant to have that done at that theater. So I have a somewhat personal connection to, to, uh, to her, but I've never, we've never staged her work. It might be something that Badmouth takes on at some point. I think it would be very cool to do. Oh, definitely. Do, mm -hmm, yeah. To do one of the plays possibly, uh, I can't remember the name of it. Maybe is it cleanse the one where it's the four voices? Uh, is that cleanse or is right. that crave? Yeah. I'd have to I'd have to look at her at her uh, body of work again, but I, I think it would be very cool to do something kind of as almost like as a radio play, like we're doing with our toe here. Uh, but yeah, yeah, no, I've never staged it. Uh, one of the one of the most affecting pieces of theater I ever saw was was in London at that time. There's a theater company. I think they're called Gray Eye. I don't know if they're still uh, operating. This is at the Soho Theater, and they produced Blasted, which is, of course, the great play that blows itself up. And this theater company works with disabled 
uh, actors and differently abled actors, I think is the PC phrase for it. Um, <laughs> and so the man who played the soldier uh, was a fellow who had no, had no legs and they built the stage in such a way that he, and of course he, he was jacked up top. He was a <laughs> chad up top and he, uh, he, they staged it in such a way that he crawled around the stage just with his, his hands. So they yeah. used his, his situation to amplify the intensity of the play. And at first I went home that night and I, I was disgusted. I hated it. I just thought, what did I just see? And then over, as the weeks went by, I was like, that's, that's like one of the greatest pieces of theater I've ever seen. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Well, I was just well, going to say, you know, mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Kevin. No, 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 go after you. <laughs> I was just, like, what I like about Sarah Kane is like, um, she reminds you of the time that theater was just part of the arts, right? Like, because in Artaud and Beckett and Chine's time, it's like theater is just part of the avant garde with writing, painting, filming, etc. It's all one thing. But um, now everything feels so like segmented and disconnected. But her work, like, you, you, you understand her as part of like a literary heritage or something. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. Theatrical heritage for sure. She was yeah. a child of the theater. You, I don't know if you've uh, give a listen to our episode on Sarah Kane, everybody. Uh, yeah. 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 Great. And of course, yeah, you can draw a direct line between Artaud and, and what, what Kane did without a doubt. There's no question. Uh, so, uh, pushing forward, we're getting to the spurt of blood moment. So I hope everybody's ready for a little bit of, little bit of theater from Bad Mouth Theater Company with Brad. You're going to, you're going to hear some familiar voices on this. Uh, Brad and Adam both have a turn. Uh, so let me get us there here in the biography. No more blank pages. We're, we're moving along really nicely here. Uh, so I want to get to, now we're, we're in 1924. 1925. We're still in Paris. He's in his mid twenties, uh, and we're getting into surrealism. And when he met uh, Breton, uh, and so let me read again from Critical Lives here. I want to. I I don't want to skip over his his affair with the with surrealism. I think it's important. Uh, let me see. So. And this, of course, comes out of the correspondence. So he writes this correspondence. He and his buddy have a, a big tweet storm that uh, gets the attention of the, the avant-garde. The publication of Artaud's correspondence with Riviere left an impression on André Breton, one of the leading figures of the Dada movement. Breton's first encounter with Artaud occurred at the premiere of Antigone, prompted by his long disdain for Cocteau, whom he struggled to keep out of Dada circles, Breton disrupted the performance. That's another thing. Back in the day, these guys were, they were like warring gangs, but of course, dorks. Uh, but they, you know, they would go so far as to like, sh- you know, just nerds, but they would shout down the performances and get in the back. It reminds me of... Uh, uh, Bolaño. Bolaño, where yeah. the, these young poets would heckle. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, so let's see here. Uh, however, by 1922, Breton had publicly eschewed his uh, association with Dadaism, sensing that the spirit of the movement was spent and unsalvageable. Breton turned to the creation of a new cultural movement, like you do, mm-hmm. one that would be uncompromising in the face of the inevitable co-opting forces. Artaud's internal conflicts and his determination to reproduce his ideas, purified of thought and form, uh, appeared to Breton to coincide with the ethos of surrealism. 
You're one of us, kid. You don't know it, but you're one of us. Uh, so let me read a little more here. Uh, there's an interesting picture here of Artaud with his sister Marianne at her wedding in 1924. He looks, he really, I don't want to overstate this too much, tall, handsome, thin, a little gaunt, but not so gaunt that, I mean, he looks like somebody who would do well in New York right now. Uh, it's very striking it, it, look. Yeah. Striking, yeah. A face that you go, ooh, is this an actor? This is somebody, ooh, i got to cast this guy. Yeah, right. definitely, yeah. He comes across. Very soulful eyes. Um, so let's see here. So on the 11th of October, 1924, uh, Breton invited Artaud to participate in surrealism. We do the same thing. We have guests on Art right. of Darkness. You're one of us. Now. Do you want to be um, a surrealist? <laughs> yeah. I do you want to be a podcaster? <laughs> Um, Artaud was indifferent, writing, writing to Madame Toulouse, I have met all the Dadaists who would like to include me in their latest surrealist boat, but nothing doing. I am too much of a surrealist for that. <laughs> Moreover, I have always been, and I know what surrealism is. It is the system of the world and of ideas that I have always practiced. So we're in this, uh ego realm where it's like well i'm more surreal than you right <laughs> right exactly <laughs> these yeah. things always devolve and not always but often devolve into this we see this in the occult movements too just like you're not occult enough i'm more occult than you i have the actual wisdom from the ancient masters right so i'm gonna go start a sect that's slightly different than yours and we're gonna you know we're gonna yell at each other from across the alley yeah yeah it always happens Interestingly enough, too, when surreal, the Surrealist movement first broke in half, because um, Breton was like an incredibly charismatic and mesmerizing person, other incredibly charismatic and mesmerizing people found themselves under his sway. Mm. Um, this is like a profound, like probably even beyond the greatness of his work, which is also undeniably great, Breton's persona was like totally mm. defeating. Um, and even when people left the surrealist movement, they often couldn't, it hurt their feelings really bad, right? So mm -hmm. like, um, Bataille had been, you know, Breton had written really shitty things about Bataille, saying he's getting surrealism all wrong, blah, blah, blah. And Bataille uh, forged his own little counter surrealist movement or surrealism squared. Uh, he launched a manifesto called the Second Surrealist Manifesto um with where he wrote for it one of my favorite poets robert desnos michelle Leary, uh, uh jacques prevert and jacques andre Buffard, who was one of the greatest photographers of all time and later they would form documents one name notably not on that list Artaud, because he did not ever join he wouldn't just join another like Artaud is like a true iconoclast you know, he does not join the groups. He does not even fucking lead the groups. He just like, he, he really is in his own category. And, you know, it's not like, it's not like we're talking about Schleps here. We're talking about George right. Bataille. So uh, I think even when you're talking, these are the greatest avant-gardists in history. Mm. And yet Artaud still kind of comes out as perhaps the most sort of um, 
this, the most sort of like iconoclastic and true to himself out of all these incredibly charismatic figures. Is that come, do you think, from like a, his personality type is just not being a joiner? Like, I like what you guys are, you know, I, I generally, I see what you're doing, I dig it, but I'm just, I don't join groups. Or do you think he actually had like aesthetic or artistic differences from these people? Oh, he definitely had an aesthetic difference with, yeah. with Tom, but maybe Kevin wants to get into that first. Well, I'll let the man speak for himself. Here's what he said about right. it. The fact remains that they do not suffer and that I do. Not only <laughs> mentally, but physically. In my everyday soul, this lack of connection to an object, a characteristic of all literature, is for me a lack of connection to life. Speaking for myself, I can honestly say that I am not in the world, and this is not merely a state of mind. So he keeps repeating yeah, this. I am not right. of this world. I do not belong here. Uh, I am in another place. Um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I, I, it, it makes me think of like two different people. It makes me think of Sartre, and it makes me think of Sun Ra. And I don't know which of these two. <laughs> Sun Ra, for yet. sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Interesting. I like that. Well, I want to read a little more here. By early 1925, Artaud was an active member of the collective, having found at last a creative space among artists who, like him, were unwilling or unable to conform to society's conventions. Even after his bitter break with the Surrealists, Artaud recalled Surrealism as a deliverance. Surrealism came to me at a moment when life had grown absolutely weary, had beaten me down, and where madness or death were the only ways out for me. Surrealism, uh, surrealism was this virtual hope, intangible, and probably as seductive as any other, but which stimulated you, in spite of yourself, to take one last chance to grapple with any phantoms, if ever they are able to deliver the mind. Surrealism could not restore my lost essence, but it taught me to look no longer for the impossibility of stability in the activity of thought and to learn to be content with the ghosts that my mind drags behind me. Even more than this, it gave these ghosts a sense, an indisputable and harsh life. And in point of fact, I have relearned to believe anew in my thoughts. So surrealism did some work for him. He yeah. admittedly. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then of course the, the most practical break with surrealism is when Breton started professing interest in and actually joined the Communist Party of France, um, which Artaud believed to be irreconcilable. It's funny on numerous levels, because like Breton as a communist is kind of a joke, like he represents the exact kind of petty bourgeois um, aesthetic pretentious dweeb that Karl Marx himself spent most of his time shitting on and just like despising. First and actually, gulag. Yeah. Exactly. And, and even like gr the greatest communist thinkers of that time, like Georgie Lukács, hated Breton because they found that like surrealism uh, was itself a petty bourgeois luxury, that the proletariat is too intimately acquainted with the reality of its own conditions, et cetera, et cetera to sort of indulge this kind of whimsical thought. Artaud, on the other hand, um, he actually wrote a piece about this called In Total Darkness, uh, which was published in some week, whatever. Uh, he says, quote, I have too much contempt for life to think that any sort of change that might develop in the realm of appearances could be in any way change my detestable condition. 
meaning communism or not, I'm going to hate this life. I'm going to hate this reality. All right. It doesn't matter yeah. what fucking political contradictions we reconcile. It's still right. going to be shit. And you all right. on some level know it. Artaud believed that the surrealists were indeed brilliant, but that their work, which was brilliant, was negated by this burgeoning materialism and what he thought of was a kind of empty hedonism. What he meant by an empty hedonism was basically like a hedonism without asceticism, without the possibility of magic, without the possibility that something else is out there. It's just indulging in your fucking uh, upper-class lifestyle, getting fucked up, talking, 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 never really dreaming, and certainly never actually achieving anything yeah. politically. Yeah. Um, so Artoa, uh, you know, this can also con connect back to his, even though it preceded it, but, it, you know, he believed that revolution had to be a spiritual deviation from the, from the prevailing order. It couldn't happen on a material level. It, it had to happen spiritually on the inside. That's why he went to Mexico to sort of seek this sort of spiritual revolution. Um, and for Artaud, surrealism itself was a new kind of magic that is immaterial, therefore directly contradicting Marx's thesis that there is a class structure that we can see and we can know. Artaud would totally disagree with this and that surrealism is supposed to be immaterial. How the fuck are you guys going to be talking about the material conditions of political reality all day. However, the one surrealist notion that I think Artaud would admit that he carried with him throughout his life was disgust. Um, the disgust that the surrealists had for the state of art was for Artaud a quote, fertile position. And this, you know, and this was actually very like, when I first read him talking about this stuff, this was hugely inspirational to me. It was like a validation of my own contempt for the culture industries and the prevailing order um, of how art is made and distributed and produced. Otherwise, he said the surrealists have been reduced to, quote, revolutionaries who revolutionize nothing. And it's... And it's always funny when he talks about this, like it literally sounds like some, a thread that I've written about the dirtbag leftists or something <laughs> like that. Like his contempt for this whole sort of like communist LARP is so visceral, mm -hmm. but, um, but at the same time, totally understandable. Oh yeah. It seems right. I mean, it seems right to me. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can't disagree with it. <clears throat> that was great. Here's what Breton had to say about, Artaud. Uh, Breton and the other surrealists welcomed Artaud's enthusiasm and commitment, but found his personality enigmatic. Shortly after meeting Artaud, uh, Simone Breton described Artaud as splendid as a wave, as pleasant as a catastrophe. According to Breton, <laughs> no one put all his powers, which were great, more sincerely to the service of the surrealist cause than Artaud. This is pre-communist uh, surrealism. Perhaps he was in greater conflict with life than the rest of us. As handsome as he was then, and as, as he moved about, he seemed to carry around with him a landscape from a black novel, all shot through with light. He was possessed of a sort of rage that did not spare, so to speak, any human institutions, but which could on occasion end in a laugh, where the ex extreme bravado of youth was discernible. Nonetheless, through the astonishing power of contagion, this rage had deeply influenced the surrealist method. 
So he took surrealism quite seriously. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit here and then we're going to listen to Spurt of Blood. I'm going to introduce that. At the same time, uh, Artaud became seriously interested in the Surrealist movement headed by André Breton and in 1923 published a volume of symbolist verse strongly influenced by Mayarmé, Verlaine, and Rimbaud. And this is called Backgammon of the Sky. Two years later, at the height of his involvement with the Surrealists, he published Umbilical Limbo, a collection of letters, poems, and prose, and bits of dialogue. It contained one complete work, the five-minute playlet La Jet de Zong, The Jet of Blood, or The Spurt of Blood. Artaud's, uh, Artaud had exerted a strong influence on the development, uh, well, since he's exerted a strong influence on the development of experimental theater and performance art. Uh, we know all this. His ideas helped inspire a movement away from the dominant role of language and rationalism in performance. Now, this is interesting. Many of his works were not produced for the public until after his death. For instance, Spurt of Blood, which he wrote in 1925 and which was not produced until 1964 when the great Peter Brook, rest in peace, who recently passed away, Hmm. uh, and Charles Merowitz staged it as part of their theater of cruelty season at the Royal Shakespeare Company. So they actually staged this play. Wow. We got together and read it for your listening enjoyment. So please now uh, enjoy this brief reading of Artaud's Spurt of Blood, and we'll come back and continue talking about the life of the, the great man. The Spurt of Blood by Anthony Artaud, translated by Ruby Cohn, a reading by Badmouth Theater Company. A young man and a young girl are on stage. I love you, and everything is beautiful. You love me, and everything is beautiful. I love you, and everything is beautiful. You love me, and everything is beautiful. Leaving her abruptly. I love you. Face me. As before, standing opposite him. There. I love you. I am great. I am lucid. I am full. I am dense. We love each other. We are intense. Ah! How beautifully the world is built. There's a noise as if an immense wheel were turning and moving the air. A hurricane separates them. At the same time, two stars are seen colliding, and from them fall a series of legs of living flesh, with feet, hands, scalps, masks, colonnades, porticos, temples, alembics, falling more and more slowly, as if falling in a vacuum. Then, three scorpions, one after another, and finally a frog and a beetle which come to rest with desperate slowness, nauseating slowness. The sky has gone mad! He looks at the sky. Let's hurry away from here! He pushes the young girl before him. Enter a medieval knight in gigantic armor, followed by a wet nurse holding her breasts in her hands and puffing because her breasts are swollen. Let go of your tits. Give me my papers. Damn, what's the matter with you? My daughter! There! With him! Quiet, there's no girl here. I'm telling you that they're screwing! What the hell do I care if they're screwing? Incest! Midwife? Plunging her hands deep into her pockets, which are as big as her breasts. Him! She throws his papers at him. Let me eat! 
the wet nurse rushes out. He gets up, and from each paper, he takes a huge hunk of Swiss cheese. Suddenly, he coughs and chokes. <clears throat> Show me your breasts. Show me your breasts. Where did she go? He runs out. The young man comes back. I saw, I knew, I understood. Here, on a public street, the priest, the cobbler, the peddler, the entrance to the church, the red light of the brothel, the scales of justice. I can't stand it any longer. Like shadows, a priest, a cobbler, a beetle, a bod, a judge, a peddler arrive on stage. I've lost her. Give her back to me. Who? 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 My wife! Your wife? You're kidding. Kidding? Maybe she's yours. Maybe she is. He runs out. The priest leaves the group and puts his arm around the neck of the young man as if confessing someone. To what part of your body do you refer most often? To God. Confused by the reply, the priest immediately shifts to a Swiss accent. But that isn't done anymore. We no longer hear through that ear. You have to ask that of volcanoes and earthquakes. We wallow in the little obscenities of man, in the confession box. That's life. Ah, yeah, that is life. Then everything is shot to hell. Of course. At this moment, night suddenly falls on stage. The earth quakes. There is furious thunder and zigzags of lightning in every direction. Through the zigzags, all the characters can be seen running and bumping into each other and falling, then getting up and running about like crazy. Then... An enormous hand seizes the bod by her hair, which bursts into flames and grows huge before our eyes. Bitch, look at your body. The bod's body is seen to be absolutely naked and hideous beneath her blouse and skirt, which become transparent as glass. Leave me alone, God. She bites God in the wrist. An immense spurt of blood lacerates the stage, and through the biggest flash of lightning, the priest can be seen making the sign of the cross. When the lights go on again, all the characters are dead, and their corpses lie all over the ground. Only the young man and the bod remain devouring each other with their eyes. The bod falls into the young man's arms. Tell me. How it happened to you. The young man hides his head in his hands. The wet nurse comes back carrying the young girl under her arm like a bundle. The young girl is dead. The bod drops her on the ground where she collapses and becomes flat as a pancake. The wet nurse no longer has her breasts. Her chest is completely flat. Where did you put them? Give me my Swiss cheese. Here you are. She lifts up her dress. The young man wants to run away, but he is frozen like a petrified puppet. Don't hurt mommy! She devil! He hides his face in horror. A multitude of scorpions crawl out from beneath the wet nurse's dress and swarm between her legs. Her vagina swells up, splits, and becomes transparent and glistening like a sun. The young man and bod run off as though lobotomized. The young girl gets up, dazed. The Virgin. Ah, that's what he was looking for.
What was that all about? <laughs> man, and Brad, oh Brad Kelly. Oh, come on. Adam Lehrer. Adam, Adam, you did great. You did man, great. I was yeah. on fire. Mm. <laughs> I'm the Daniel Day-Lewis fucking podcast place. <laughs> ah, the virgin. That's what he was looking yeah. for. But, <laughs> oh, that, I love that. And Ian's voice is incredible. The for, great yeah. Ian Ian Hathaway, Hathaway. who who mm-hmm. played the uh, the knight, and then of course the, the voice, heavy of, voice, the heavy voice, which I amplified and duplicated, and he gave us choke me, old press. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I liked when he did that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wild. I mean, and you can see the influence on Sarah Kane, and you can mm-hmm. just about imagine what people must have made of this at the time. Yeah. We're, this is not, I mean, how is this, how would um, people at that time have encountered this? Obviously it wasn't put on. So you had read it in something. Yeah, it was, it was published in umbilical limbo, a collection of letters, poems and prose and bits of dialogue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You said that. So a play probably not meant to be staged at the well, time. Well, it, it seems so it seems so deliberately unproducible that its unproducibility is its own commentary to me. Like it you know, it's shattering the the form, right? And yeah. Just, <clears throat> and totally heretical and coming out of World War 1. Yeah. And yeah. uh the anger at that. I love when the the bod, which is a uh, mistress of a brothel, says the line, leave me alone, God. <laughs> um, it's it's very good. rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, I think it is important to, to note, though, that, you know, Artaud, is, he's, he's a modernist. He's not a postmodernist. So in his mind, he probably would have wanted to see this play come to life. However, however impossible. You know, That's he wouldn't just uh, he wouldn't just put something on the page so uh, so people like Breton can fucking wank off to it. But uh, <laughs> you know, he would he would have been you know it was all about getting things on the stage and seeing what would happen and that unknown factor of what would happen that right. was what it was all about for him. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Well, that was a lot of fun. Thank you, thank you both for for joining in. Uh, and I, I'd be remiss not to pitch. We've got a series of readings of other plays that are longer and kind of less far out than that. Although we have some far out, far out stuff there, and that's at badmouthtc.com. Uh, if you look for the podcast there, you can listen to some listen to some plays we've been working on. So, uh, gotta make theater one way or another. Gotta get it out there. I love yeah. it. Um, so moving on, Artaud broke with the organized surrealist movement in 1926, uh, and our friend Adam has already sort of described some of this, when Breton became a communist and attempted to take his fellow members with him into the party. Yet Artaud continued to view himself as a, as a surrealist, and in 1927 wrote the film script for La Coquille et le Clergyman, uh, perhaps the most famous surrealist film, and... Uh, something called Nerve Scales, uh, another collection containing various literary forms. I love these titles, Umbilical Limbo, Nerve Scales. Uh, you can tell that somebody's way ahead of his time and would influence a lot of people. 
Expelled by Breton in 1927, this was in part due to the Surrealists' increasing affiliation with the Communist Party. As Roz Murray notes, Artaud was not into politics at all, writing things like, I shit on Marxism. (laughs) 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 Additionally, Breton was becoming very anti-theater because he saw theater as being bourgeois and anti-revolutionary. Not Artaud's theater, uh, I don't think. So I've got another little bit from Critical Lives here that I want to get across. Um, Surrealism's adoption of a more political posture during the autumn of 1926 frayed Artaud's connection to it. Artaud's interest in theater snapped the thread. Breton targeted theater as another bourgeois cultural contrivance and thus anathema to Surrealism's increasingly political objectives. Artaud remained committed to theater, seeing in theater's regeneration a vehicle for revolution. Together with another excommunicated Surrealist, Roger Vitrac, and Robert Aaron, secretary to Gaston Gallimard, Artaud approached René and Yvonne Allendy in September of 1926 about financing a new theater venture, the Theater Alfred Jari. A prospectus for the theater appeared in the issue of NRF uh, 1 November 1926. Theater is the most impossible thing in the world to save. An art based entirely on a power of illusion that it is incapable of delivering can only disappear. Words either have or don't have their power of illusion. They have their own individual value, but sets, costumes, gestures, and fake cries will never replace the reality we expect. What is urgent is the creation of a reality, the unprecedented eruption of a world. Theater must give us this ephemeral but real world, this world in tangent with reality. Either it will become this world or theater will cease to exist. In Artaud's prospectus, theater is an interactive experience. The audience is a participant in the production. It is not simply the spectator, not just entertained, but is viscerally and ontologically transformed or destabilized by the experience, leaving the theater in human anguish. Uh, In contrast to the blueprint for the theater of cruelty that he would develop uh, years later, in 1926, Artaud still privileged text. And this is what he said. For this definition that we try to give to the theater, one thing seems invulnerable to us. One thing appears true, the text. But the text as a distant reality existing by itself is self-sufficient, not in terms of its spirit, that we, do, that we do not tend to respect, but simply in terms of displacement of air created by its enunciation. Enough said. So he, he had a lot of opinions about theater, and then he would sort of, he started, um, you know, this theater, Alfred Jari, which is named after the, I believe, is it the writer of Ubu Roy, which was a very influential uh, yes. avant-garde play. Uh, so... I wanted to read that to give kind of an idea of where his mind was at there. Now I see something you have here for us, Adam, this essay in total darkness. What's the story here? Oh, in total darkness. That was just the one that I was talking about. Uh, oh, that, right. that was his essay about his break with surrealism. Mm, I see. I, I see. Hit, I hit it too early. No, that's fine. You're doing great. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah. so we have this. Uh, so that's outstanding. So he's broken with uh, surrealism although he's still deeply influenced by it, but he wants nothing to do with Marxism. He shits on Marxism. Uh, well, I, I, believe- I, I love that. I mean, mm-hmm. fucking commies. So like, 
the thing, the whole thing about like, well, the theater is just a bourgeois contrivance. It's like, dude, if you take the theater seriously, you should be trying to save it from these bourgeois contrivances, not abandoning it. You it's know, also even, totally hypocritical. It, it is. Mean, yeah. You know, it, there's nothing more bourgeois than sitting around fucking cafes all day and talking about you know, right. art and poetry and, and writing little bitchy essays about your right. former friends in whatever journal. Right. So all this stuff is going to be like, at least in, it's all petty bourgeois. You know, the, is, arts, right. the arts are petty bourgeois. Sure. But um, Artaud understood his role, right. which is that of an artist and a creator. If, if Breton really wanted to be a fucking communist, then he should have been you know, he should have been, you know, writing a communist theory or arming working right. class yeah. people to start killing, uh, killing the ruling class. Right. Yeah. He should have been organizing or whatever. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I have respect for like, you know, someone like Lukash or like Bordega or Lenin who actually like put their money where their mouth was and gave everybody guns and, yeah. <laughs> and tried to achieve something. Yeah. But Breton yeah. was literally just like, it was all an academic abstraction for him. Larkin. Right. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Good well, thing nobody does that anymore. Yeah, yeah, we've come <laughs> we've come such a long way. Uh in the manifesto for an abortive theater in 26 and 27 written for the theater Alfred Jari, Arto makes a direct attack on the surrealists who he calls bog paper revolutionaries, so toilet paper revolutionaries that would make us believe that to produce theater today is a counter-revolutionary endeavor. He declares they are bowing down to communism, which is a lazy man's revolution, and calls for a more essential metamorphosis of society. And I see you have some stuff here, Adam, saying that Artaud believed that lives must be staked on the spectacle that unfolds on the stage. Yeah. Art must contain the possibility of failure for the possibility of transcendence to be pre uh, preconditional of its production. Yeah, Love and that. that's the line that he would follow when he. It, started to question the role of language itself in theater. But, you know, lives must be staked. It must mean that, like, it must feel like anything can happen. People must feel their senses of identity under assault. They also might be even physically under assault. You know, things are happening, and there's sort of an uncontrollable phantom that is proliferating this scene. And, um, you know, he, he even said that a theater that followed its script every single night that repeats, quote, according to its rights that are always the same could not be one that supports. He believed um, the movements of the actors uh, should be the invisible signs of an invisible language, meaning things are being conveyed, but they've spun out of control. It's no longer just the, the text of the writer, but meaning is being created right in front of everybody. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, I always connect this thing to like the idea of just one thing I'm always drawn to in any sort of cultural production is empty space. Um, you know, and that could be, you know, in a, in a high avant-garde film, it could be something like Stalker, where so much is conveyed without anything, without Tarkovsky really even showing us. And yet this creepy atmosphere, this possibility is achieved. Um, 
or, or you know, sort of like Adolf Gottlieb's paintings where the, these abstract blobs with just the slightest gestures of a figure. Um, and then just like this huge mystery just emanates from the canvas. And then on sort of my like low, more chud version, I think you can even apply like when really fast and intense uh, bands like Dark Throne or uh, like Dark Throne, the black metal band does on Panzerfaust. They slow their sound down a little, a lot more space in the recording. And yet it's, I think it's the best thing they've ever created. I think you could say the same thing about Black Flag's My War. Um, there's something that happens when you leave space, uh, leave, leave, leave mystery space and the possibility for something out of your control to happen um, that I, I think is a great stance. Yeah, and we just watched, for our second watch party, we just watched Jaws, which may seem totally far afield from this, but <laughs> if you know anything about how that film got made, they got extremely lucky, but they then made their own luck out of the accidents that happened. Absolutely. And it's got this like John Cage kind of, he precedes John Cage here, where it's like, we're going to build space for, for chaos yes. and then roll with it. Yeah. And yeah, lovely way to think about. Uh, I mean, Jaws now, I mean, it was like the beginning of blockbusters and yet now it looks like an art film. You know, <laughs> it really does. It, 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 it really does. does. It's like mm -hmm. it starts with just some girl being dragged underwater, like, you know, like not yeah. really explained. It. Like, we know it's a fish because we saw the branding. But if you were just seen it in line, you'd be like, what the fuck is going on? Absolutely. Well, I saw a play, you know, talking about the Royal Court Theater, I saw a play Upstairs at the Court where Blasted premiered by a playwright named Alexandra Wood. I don't know if she's still active, but the play was called The 11th Capital. And it's sort of about uh, neo-colonialism and neoliberalism and uh, all of this. And it was done uh, uh, promenade, so you had no seat. And midway through the play, they ran barbed wire across one side of the stage and the other side, not even the stage, one side of the space and the other side of the space and shoved the audience behind barbed wire during the middle of the play. Nice. You can't, film will never replace that. I'll never forget that. It's a mm -hmm. profound gesture. You're made to feel something directly what our toe would have appreciated. That's yeah. what we're here to do. We're here to involve yeah. the audience. And, and um, yeah, I want to I want to cycle back to his relationship uh, uh, with that woman and, and, uh, and the breakup because we're moving toward uh, his encounter, a real deep encounter with Balinese theater and then and then his trip to Mexico uh, before the sort of final phase of his life when he returned to he would eventually return to France and spend most of his final days in in the madhouse. Uh, let's see here. I want to read about this because I think it's important. Ah, uh, let's see. Mm. So, yeah, he uh, he was going through this breakup, and we're we're uh, we're still, I believe, in the twenties here. He then proceeded to denude his heart of every emotional fiber of Atanazao. Uh, the proof of our cohabitation of our impulses toward each other, of our conflicts as well, is a perfect representation of love as I imagine it. Before alternating between hopeful, but I appreciate that you already became in some way as alone as me, and I alone can fill this solitude as you alone can fill mine, 
and disconsolate, if not melodramatic. I assure you that since our breakup, I often think of death or life. It's the same thing. And this thought that in an infinite, in the absolute, I will be alone without you who was my soul, without the counterbalance and the compensation of your presence. This thought was for me perfectly heartbreaking. What do you want me to be in the face and the service of death? This letter was one of Artaud's last cri de corps to Atanasau. By April 1928, Artaud had all but given up on anything but a working relationship with her. Yeah. Yeah. I cannot, I want to read this. I cannot prevent myself from thinking that you live an abominable life. And I can only say that you cannot be my lover. Anyone who has been my lover and who lives and sleeps with another man who is unworthy of her can no longer exist in my life. You have never been my woman at any moment before the spirit or in the eyes of God, as I had believed, because if you were this woman, you would never have left me or you would have returned to me. To me, my solitude is without a name, without limits, and it increases twofold the horror to think that I have always in reality been alone and that for five years someone made for me and who has known me intimately did not perfect my life. You have allowed me to realize the illusion that I lived in your spirit. Woman is an inferior being who has botched her destiny since the first days of the world. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Like a lot of feminist artists were super into Artaud. Like I've mentioned Nancy Spiro before. All her early works are drawings of his visage using his like quotes and stuff. Pretty good stuff. And then Carolee Schneeman as well. All her early uh, performances and video works were like Artaud shout outs. But this sounds like straight up like MGTOW. Like this sounds yeah, like Dylan yeah. Roof could have written it. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. it sounds so. Women, uh, yeah, women are, I mean, literally, I mean, women are inferior and they've always <laughs> been like that, like on a cosmological level since, you know, since there were human beings. Yeah, yeah. I, think we, I think all <laughs> men have felt like that at some point too, which is great, but he's just like, because I've definitely had like horrible breakups where I just wish like horrible things would happen to this woman in particular, but as a stand in for all women. You know? <laughs> and I think um, he said the quiet part out loud. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, he, he closed the letter with this. I kiss you in spite of all and from my heart. That's how he closed the letter. <laughs> You got to remember, this is a man who he just, I think, turned 30. He was like in his late 20s, just 30. Yeah, yeah. yeah but different time, too. Uh, yeah, it wasn't uh, pickup culture. You didn't, you know, you didn't have. Hmm. I, got a, I got a good letter here. I can read the beginning part really quick where he's, um, you know, she had just uh, told him she can't be with him anymore because of his drug use. He says something interesting here. You must be calm, darling angel. I am better. My mind is recovering and I am still alive. With all my soul, with all that is purest in me, I swear to you once and for all that you have always exaggerated the trouble with drugs. <laughs> Ask my mother if you know her. <laughs> she will tell you that I have always been merciless with my intimates, and this well before opium, that I have never been able to tolerate any contradiction. I wish you had known me three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. I was a raging demon because of the evil that smoldered within me and which was not opium. So what he's basically saying is 
you think the drugs are the problem. Right. When, right. when I when I don't have the drugs, I'm worse. <laughs> right. I, you know, I will be worse to you. Yeah, that's yeah. Don't leave me. Don't leave me about the drugs. The drugs aren't a problem. I'm an asshole. <laughs> I'm like a terrible exactly. person. <laughs> You're gonna leave me. You should leave me because of that. Yeah. Poor innocent drugs. They never did anything. <laughs> don't do heroin. Yeah. Uh, he had a few other affairs here in the twenties. Uh, he tried to pursue a relationship with Janine Kahn, the younger sister of Breton's first wife, Simone. Uh, he wrote a letter to her, I believe. Uh, yeah. Some of my dreams appear to me too bitter, too remarkable opium aside in order not to contain some powerful affirmations. Imagine that I have seen in a dream you on my bed covered in red in the process of consummating a terrifying union. That was the substance of my dream, just as in the mass of my soul, but physically, objectively, I am still only able to squeeze you in my arms with fierce passion. So I don't think that they ever uh, consummated that. Now, this is the period where he would work on uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc. And if you've not seen that, I highly recommend it. Dreyer is the uh, the director. 1928, French silent historical film. It's one of the greatest pieces of cinema uh, of all time. Influenced a lot uh, that followed. And the Artaud's performance is riveting. Uh, he's, uh, Adam, you were talking about how striking he looks. He looks just out of this world. He doesn't look like anyone else in the film. Uh, and of course, the the central um, actor's performance in that, uh, Rene Jean Falconetti is just staggering. I highly recommend watching this. If you don't, if you're not into reading Artaud, you can at least uh, appreciate his performance in this fabulous movie. I might even put it on tonight. Uh, again, it's one of those movies. You watch it and you, it makes most of what happens now in cinema just look like, uh, finger painting, just in terms of composition, atmosphere, lighting, the acting. And I, I love this kind of early film acting, which is so clearly influenced by theater. And yet they're creating the language of cinema as they make the film. And Artaud was a part of that. Uh, so now we return to the theater for Artaud. So during this period, he did have a lot of interest in film. Uh, we're not going to dwell too much on that. Uh, but that was all sort of happening in the background. So we've, we've burned, we've burned through cinema. We've burned through relationships. We're addicted to opium. We're, we're really, really angry at the love of our life. We're really, really angry at woman, capital W, uh, angry, angry, angry. We shit on communism. And then we find the Balinese theater, uh, 1931 as one does. Uh, in 1931, Artaud saw Balinese dance performed at the Paris Colonial Exposition. Although he misunderstood much of what he saw, it influenced many of his ideas for the theater. Uh, Adrian or Adrian Curtin has noted the significance of the Balinese use of music and sound, stating that Artaud was struck by the hip hypnotic rhythms of the gamelan ensemble its range of percussive effects, 
the variety of timbres and the musicians produ- uh, that the musicians produced. And most importantly, perhaps, the way in which the dancers' movements interacted dynamically with the musical elements instead of simply functioning as a type of background accompaniment. So the idea here is that there is a totality happening in Balinese theater that is perhaps missing from from Western theater as Artaud thinks about it. I have another... have, I'm sorry, how would he have seen Balinese theater? Uh, it said right at the beginning that it was performed sorry. at the, no, not at all, at the yeah. Paris Colonial Exposition. Okay. okay. So uh, I'm looking at Wikipedia. It was a six-month colonial exhibition held in Paris, France in 1931 that attempted to d- display the diverse cultures and immense resources of France's colonial possessions. Ah, their possessions, I see. Okay. Indeed, yeah. yeah. I'm sure uh, today we would say this was problematic. Uh, there was even a, a communist counter-exhibition. At the request of the Comintern, a smaller counter-exhibition entitled The Truth on the Colonies, or- organized by the Communist Party, attracted very few visitors. <laughs> oh, shit, don't change. I love cultural appropriation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The first section was dedicated to abuses committed during the colonial conquest's welfare. Uh, and quoted Albert Londres and André Guide's criticisms of forced labor in the colonies. Well, the second one made a comparison of Soviet nationalities policy to imperialist colonialism. So, of course, Mm. we know the the Soviets are so much better to their people than (laughs) than the French uh, were, I'm I'm sure. Well, in any event, that's what that was. And so he encountered the Balinese dance that way. which, hey, look, uh, you know, for all the problems of that, there's some cultural exchange that happens that then influences this thinker who then goes on to influence the remainder of the 20th century oh, across yeah. different art forms. And yeah, so, I'm like totally into, I think cultural appropriation is great. I'm not being ironic. I love it. I do it all the time. I love stealing from uh, people that have <laughs> suffered in ways that I have not. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> but no, I'm not. Um, it's, it's your lived experience. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. But, uh, it's it's just call that's just how culture works. I I don't absolutely. It's a yeah. totally fake and gay uh, <laughs> academic. How do you really uh, abstraction? Feel? <laughs> no, it, I mean it's hard. Yeah, it, it is. No, it's it's really ridiculous. You're right. It's yeah. it's totally yeah. ridiculous. There's yeah. this um this band I really love called Sun City Girls. Uh, they're from Arizona and they uh, started off as kind of a art punk band but then sort of became like a limitless very artoian like freak rock band that you know and and it's run by two brothers alan and richard bishop and these guys travel the whole world and they collect sounds via field recordings and sometimes put out some of the music that they find in syria bali um all over the place out on this label called sublime frequencies and um you know some of this stuff gets a big audience but in this interview for The Wire, some liptard is like accusing the brothers of cultural appropriation. First of all, their father is Syrian. So, you know, they're right. not appropriating anything. But second of all, they go, cultural appropriation? What the fuck? I don't care about Why are you asking? I don't care about this. And um, right. he's, like, <laughs> do you think, he's like, do you think the Syrian guitar players that were playing in bars for 12 people are mad? that people in the West are buying their music and they're making money. It's just like a preposterous uh, academic limitation. It's It's also extremely anti-American because that's what this place is. It's this 
this place is supposed to be. So if you start putting up these rules, you're creating, they're just doing what is happening writ large, which is the greatest bait and switch of all time in, yeah. in America. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. And we have to stand, uh, stand up and against it. It's ridiculous. Are the, thing, are the uh, Rolling Stones uh, culturally appro- appropriating the blues? Like, I mean, how, how far is this going to go? I mean, yeah. yes, but also they're great. So yeah. Like, yeah. Well, it's yeah. like the same thing with Elvis where people are like, he stole it from black people. It's like Elvis yeah. was black. He literally grew up in like a black neighborhood in the deep South. Like, yeah. and if it wasn't for his fame and his beauty and his charisma, then um, Lead Belly and Little Richard and all those fucking guys, sorry, they would have never gotten famous. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you need a pretty white boy to break down the door in a country uh, you know, that is still 50% white. It's just, 100%. Uh, it's different times too now. So yeah. yeah, no, I think we're all, we're all aligned yeah. here. So I have this book called um, Blows and Bombs, and it's got a picture of Artaud when he was still uh, A-list handsome in Joan of Arc. And this is... Stephen Barber, and I have a quote here, or He's I have great. a, yeah, I have a passage that I want to read. Uh, let me see here, because we're getting into the theater of cruelty. Um, and this is about Artaud and the Balinese dance. Artaud attended one of the performances of the dancers uh, from the island of Bali in the Indonesian archipelago at the massive colonial exhibition held in the Vincennes woods on the southeastern peripheries of Paris. He had been on film location for the early part of the summer acting in the wooden crosses and returned to Paris in mid-July. Soon after witnessing the performance on the 1st of August, he began writing through his responses as an article for uh, LNR, uh, the the NRV or NRF rather the La Nouvelle Revue Francaise. Part of his reaction so this he had a journal that he was like a lifer at, which is great. Part of his reaction was conveyed in a long letter sent to Jean Pauhan while Artaud was on a trip to Anjou. His experience of the Balinese theater and its gestural intensity was the first of the three events of 1931, which provided the essential groundwork for the theater of cruelty. The same year, he discovered a painting in the Louvre Museum by Lucas van den Leiden, which inspired his concept of the spatial and aural dimensions of the theater. And he saw two films by the Marx Brothers, Animal Crackers and Monkey Business, which (laughs) gave to the theater of cruelty its attachment to laughter as a force of wild destruction and liberation. So he's drawing from film, he's drawing from Balinese theater, and he's drawing from a painting. Uh, for Artaud, the Balinese dance theater contained all of the elements which he had included in the Alfred Jari theater as a strategy of resistance to the predominantly textual and psychological European theater. It had the centrality of the gesture and the subordination of the textual. It had discipline and magic. What Artaud added from his own temperament was the ferocity and the attack upon society with which his idea of the theatrical gesture would be charged. Above all, in 1931, Artaud was envisaging a truly dangerous theater, which would threaten the security both of the word and of the world with its unique performances. From the Balinese dance theater, he formulated a project for an entirely new language of physically articulated signs. His actors would become compact, evocative hieroglyphs. Artaud's spectacle would be so immediately articulate that it, that it could largely dispense with any textual elements. He was bluntly rejecting an entire theatrical tradition. Quoting, a European conception of the theater requires the theater to be mixed up with the text, that everything should be centered around the dialogue, which is considered as the point of departure and arrival. 
Artop received no text in the Balinese theater. He was attracted by fragmentary, violent gestures, which were suddenly cut and abandoned, producing an autonomous and pure creation under the angles of hallucination and fear. Yeah. And that sort of uh, mirrors, you know, some of his work. Um, him and Bataille do have alignment on a few things. Bataille said the essence of poetry was in violent contradictions, you know, and uh, theater of cruelty very much deals with that. It's about, you know, you have this suggestive text, but the real power, the real power of it is in, um, it's in the fact that, you know, for our tote, the theater of cruelty is like a precise action in which the identities and final impact, quote unquote, swallow the means. So therefore, the theater stops mattering. And that's why I think his work is so influential in other categories, because you could apply the same thing to uh, fiction, poetry, painting. But rock it's, and roll, it's rock and roll, shows. rock and roll, noise, music. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's got to be about the impact at the end. And I often say this myself, that when you know when you saw a great work of art, is you feel something so specific that you, your ego dissolves. Your layers of pretentiousness and your eh, little bitchy fucking blah, blah, blah. It all dissolves beneath the weight of this sort of feeling. Uh, that's the thing that I'm always, that's the crypto transgressive quality that I'm always trying to, that I'm always trying to locate. You know, and, um, you know, you can, and the best is when you can identify this sort of Artoian quality, this crypto transgressive quality in unlikely places. Like there was an episode of the show Euphoria this year. Um, and there's one particular scene uh, in which the main character is being threatened with uh, being sold into sex slavery over her drug addiction. And this is supposed to be like a glitzy HBO show, right? It's something about that disturbed me on such an intense level. I was on edibles, you know, and I, I shed tear. I got like kind of panicky watching it. I've watched the most fucked up things you could possibly imagine. <laughs> that, I, that to me is what the theater of cruelty really is. That annihilation of the senses. It takes us way back to an early yeah. episode. Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff talked about objective art. Uh, and yeah, good call. Yeah. Well, so we're, we've arrived at the publication of the the great book of uh, essays, The Theater and Its Double, uh, which he would release. It was only published in 38, but he was writing it um, at this in, during this period. And chronologically, the first essay was on Balinese theater, production and metaphysics, the Theater and Alchemy, or Alchemist Theater, The Theater of Cruelty, The Second Manifesto of the Theater of Cruelty, Theater and the Plague. Adam, do you want to read any, uh, any of the manifesto? Do you want to read anything, or shall I, from the theater, of, uh, theater and its double? I want to read just a little bit because it's so essential. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, why don't you do that? Okay. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just open up to the part that I wanted to get to. Okay, great. Well, so I want to read. I'm just going to read from the theater... Uh, and the plague. Let me see. I want to see uh, if I can find the right part. Let's see. He describes the plague coming to Marseille. Uh, he describes what happens to the, the people in great detail. Uh, so let's talk about what happens when the plague comes. 
And this is from the theater and its double and the, the theater and, and the plague, the essay. From these peculiarities, these mysteries, these contradictions, and these symptoms, we must construct the spiritual physiognomy of a disease which progressively destroys the organism like a pain which, as it intensifies and deepens, multiplies its resources and means of access at every level of the sensibility. But from this spiritual freedom with which the plague develops, without rats, without microbes, and without contact, can be deduced the somber and absolute action of a spectacle, which I shall attempt to analyze. Sound like COVID at all? Does it sound familiar? (laughs) How does this thing spread? We don't know. Once the plague is established in a city, the regular forms collapse. There is no maintenance of roads and sewers, no army, no police, no municipal administration. Pyres are lit at random to burn the dead with whatever means are available. Each family wants to have its own. Then wood, space, and flame itself growing rare. There are family feuds around the pyres, soon followed by a general flight, for the corpses are too numerous. The dead already clog the streets in ragged pyramids gnawed at by animals around the edges. The stench rises in the air like a flame. Entire streets are blocked by the piles of dead. Then the houses open, and the delirious victims, their minds crowded with hideous visions, spread howling through the streets. The disease that ferments in their viscera and circulates throughout their entire organism discharges itself in tremendous cerebral explosions. Other victims, without buos, delirium, pain, or rash, examine themselves proudly in the mirror in splendid health, as they think, and then fall dead with their shaving mugs in their hands, full of scorn for other victims. Over the poisonous, thick, bloody streams, color of agony and opium, which gush out of the corpses, strange personages pass, dressed in wax, with noses long as sausages and eyes of glass, mounted on a kind of Japanese sandal made of double wooden tablets, one horizontal in the form of a soul, the other vertical, to keep them from the contaminated fluids, chanting absurd litanies that cannot prevent them from sinking into the furnace in their turn. These ignorant doctors betray only their fear and their childishness. The dregs of the population, apparently immunized by their frenzied greed, enter the open houses and pillage riches they know will serve no purpose or profit. And at the same moment, the theater is born. The theater, that is, an immediate gratuitousness provoking acts without use or profit. (laughs) I love that. Well, oh man! I mean, and he I goes mean, on. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I, uh, I, I was just expressing. I don't I, even want to say anything. I feel like I I'm have to. I do have to go on a little bit because I did arrive to the key point, and I'm glad I know this book well enough to do this. <laughs> I've I read this when I was starting out in the theater. I must have read this a dozen times. Uh, I, I carried this and uh, Mammoth, Three Uses of the Knife, and I carried. Uh, the Empty Space, Peter Brook. Um, between the victim of the plague who runs in shrieking pursuit of his visions and the actor in pursuit of his feelings, 
between the man who invents for himself personages he could never have imagined without the plague, creating them in the midst of an audience of corpses and delirious lunatics and the poet who inopportunely invents characters, entrusting them to a public equally inert or delirious, there are other analogies which confirm the only truths that count and locate the action of the theater, like that of the plague, on the level of a verifiable epidemic. But whereas the images of the plague occurring in relation to a powerful state of physical disorganization are like the last volleys of a spiritual force that is exhausting itself, the images of poetry in the theater are a spiritual force that begins its trajectory in the senses and does without reality altogether. Once launched upon the fury of his task, an actor requires infinitely more power to keep from committing a crime than a murderer needs courage to complete his act. And it is here in its very gratuitousness, that the action and effect of a feeling in the theater appears infinitely more valid than that of a feeling fulfilled in life. I could go on. I could read this whole thing. Uh, but that, that analogy, comparing plague to theater and theater to the plague, is such a stroke of genius. And I, it's an idea that I hold central to my understanding of the world. And I had a hard time through COVID. Everybody did. I didn't get it. I didn't die. Uh, but obviously, it was a very traumatic time, I think, for, for everyone on some level. Uh, and just having Artaud's idea of the plague as theater did help me kind of laugh at some of the absurdity that we had to entertain. Yeah. Uh, it's like the threat. Like I said before, it's like the threat of a plague. Mm. You know, the threat that these forces might be unleashed upon us makes people really. And honestly, I've thought about this a lot, like what Artaud would think of as uh, of neoliberalism as like a governing structure. And part of me thinks he'd really be interested in it, in that it's like made us all crazy, you know? <laughs> and the, but it's and the like, madhouses are closed. There right. are no more, right. But it's like a blue ball crazy, right? It like, it's like we're continuously suspended over a cliff, looking out, down at the abyss of madness, but just satiated enough through fucking internet TV and bad food yeah. to keep ourselves like stable and controlled. Right. What Artaud would have been interested in was that final fucking push, the real kind of like collapse of everything. And the real kind of shitty thing about liberalism is like, the Groypers are always like, oh, it's collapse, collapsing. Nah, motherfuckers, it's not. It's going to go on like this for a long, a long time. time. And yeah. that's the real black bill. Yeah. Um, Arto <laughs> would Arto would want that, you know, final push. Just do it. I think Arto yeah. is interested in the moment where the coyote is chased, the roadrunner, but is off the cliff and doesn't know he's off the cliff yet. I think Arto is interested in the moment when the coyote looks down. Just that right. That yeah, for sure. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And we're not, um, yeah, we're not, most of us aren't quite there yet, you know, or we're, I think, uh, I think for most of us, we suspect and we're about to look down yet, but we haven't quite that microsecond. Really. Dude, I've been, I've been yeah. looking down yeah, since look I was a teenager, man. <laughs> yeah. well, I'm always like shocked that like people can have jobs. Like I'm too fried to have a job. I mean, I, I've, I, I'm like wildly overqualified for the jobs that I have worked is like, you know, I've been like museum researcher. I've been a, I was a tour guide for fucking years, which was like pretty easy for me. Cause you know, you know, I can talk and I'm charismatic, et cetera. But yeah. uh, I'm always like shocked that people can like, 
I'm so unemployable. Like I just can't imagine not having a million things that an employer would immediately throw your name off the list for. But you know, yeah. more power to the people that do. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to close this uh, pa- passage on the the theater uh, and its double because we could spend we could do an entire episode just on this book. I think you can tell from what I read, Brad. There's a lot yeah. there. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, but in the interest of time, as we are careening into our third hour, uh, the theater, like the plague, is a crisis, which is resolved by death or by healing. Yeah. And the plague, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm reading it from you. Yeah, thank you for writing it down. <laughs> and the plague is a superior evil because it is a complete crisis after which nothing remains but death or an extreme purification. Hmm. It's like Jünger yeah. total war here. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Well, don't you feel, and I don't know when the last time you both were in a situation where you were seeing theater, there's a degree of it when we kick off a podcast episode and I'm leading the episode, Brad, and I know yeah. you lead, we sort of alternate. There's that little bit of stage fright. I, did, I, I Increasingly with the podcast, I'm not feeling it because we're coming really prepared. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, when, when at Badmouth, we did this reading series and the first reading in the series was my play. And it had been years since I had been in a theatrical setting. And it's just this little room at Waldman Brewery in St. Paul. And it's, uh, there's a buffalo head on the wall. And we maybe had 15, 20 people come out. I had that feeling. There's a feeling you can't get anywhere else. It's not going to happen on Zoom uh, where you get butterflies and you get real, there's a real visceral reaction where you're, you're putting yourself out there in front of an audience. There's just something to that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. That is just, you know, you can't get it anywhere else. And if you act, you know, the feeling, uh, and I, I really do think it's essential to, it's essential to our humanity. I don't want to get to even when I do humanity. like live readings that I get it, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I relish it cause I fucking love attention. It's like a drug to me, mm-hmm. but, um, I always, my, you know, my wife can val- validate this. Like before I have to do a reading, I usually put on like Velvet Underground's Run, Run, Run or something. I call it like getting in character and I got to like swivel around and like find my bravado, mm-hmm. you know, make sure my hair looks cool. Mm-hmm. And then I can get out there and I can, because I, I consider like, I, you know, my writing persona is a persona. It's not necessarily me. It's like I'm, it's like, like a Andrew Dice Clay or something like right. that. Hey. <laughs> Andrew Dice Clay was very Artoian, I think. Mm. Yeah, and, I think Artoian stand-up yeah. comedy has qualities of yeah, 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 yeah. That like, mm-hmm. yeah, just like because uh, you know the whole like art, you know Andrew Dice Clay had the suggestion of an idea. There is a text to him, and yet the 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 real power of his work is like what might happen when he starts being like. Hey, I thought we threw a bomb on Japan, but I'm walking around downtown right now. It's like we fucking dropped fertilizer over there. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and there's that there's that nervous tension, and you don't know is he going to start doing yeah. crowd work? Is he going to pick on me? Right. Uh, and that's that that's that feeling of the actor as like a contagion. Like, no, I don't. Oh, right, don't break right. the spell. I just want to yeah. be this disembodied eye watching. Yeah. Well, that's not always how how life works and that's not how the theater should necessarily be i'm reminded too of the great um sleep no more the immersive experience uh in new york city which yeah. uh, i don't know if you did that adam but that's oh yeah i've been to it yeah 
Yeah, very cool. Uh, maybe is a cliche, but it's like very immersive and you're a part of the performance and everyone else is too and it creates a vibe. Um, all right, let's, let's push on. So 1935, uh, he did a production of Percy by, uh, how do you say this? Per- Percy, Percy by Shelley. Is that right? Um, I always just say Shelley to avoid Shelley. Shelley. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> uh, Shelley's the sensei at the theater de Folie Wagram in Paris. The drama was his only chance to stage a theater of cruelty production in his life. And he emphasized its cruelty and violence. This is such an easy art of dark episode, the art of yeah. darkness episode, Brad. We don't have to everything. Much. Yeah. yeah. In particular, he emphasized its themes of incest, revenge, and familial murder. In this place, uh, in the stage directions, he describes the opening scene as suggestive of extreme atmospheric turbulence with windblown drapes, waves of suddenly amplified sound, and crowds of figures engaged in furious orgy, accompanied by a chorus of church bells, as well as the presence of numerous large mannequins. Jane Goodall writes of the Sensi, the predominance of action over reflection accelerates the development of events. The monologues are cut in favor of sudden jarring transitions so that a spasmodic effect is created. Extreme fluctuations in pace, pitch, and tone heighten sensory awareness uh, and, and intensify the here and now of the performance. The Sensi was a commercial failure. Oh, come on, really? <laughs> Although it employed innovative sound effects, including the first theatrical use of the electronic instrument, the Andes Martinot, which I don't know what that is. We're going to look it up and had a set designed by Balthus. One of the all time greatest Coomer artists ever. <laughs> yes. Oh, right. Of course, that fellow. Uh, yeah, I to... love Balthus. A lot of, lot of paintings of 15 year old girls with their legs, you know, open just so. And Indeed. also brothers. And cats, of, uh, right? Cats. Yeah. And also the brother of Pierre Klasowski. Uh, who's both a philosopher and a painter, who wrote perhaps the greatest treatise on Marquis de Sade. I mean, the collaborative energy of this time period is absolutely fucking amazing. I mean, these are all the greatest to ever do it, and they're all, like, hanging out and shit. It's pretty nuts. Yeah. Well, and yeah. Let's, let's talk about how ahead of his time he was. So this Andes Martinot is an early electronic musical instrument. Aha, for the After Dark, I'm going to source the sound of this thing. Yeah. And I am going to make sure that we include some of it in the after dark for Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash art of dark pod and admit to yourself. If you are still listening to this episode, we put in the work. Yeah. Yeah, we did support the show. We love hearing. And by the way, we reply to everybody who gets on Patreon. You you'll, you'll hear from us in return. We, we love to hear suggestions for episodes to do, and we really legitimately do appreciate the support. Uh, but yeah, so the Andes Martinot is an early electronic musical instrument. It is played with a keyboard or by moving a ring along a wire, creating a wavering sound similar to a theremin. Ooh. A player of the Andes Martinot is called an Andes Ondist. It was invented in 1928 by the French inventor Maurice Martinot. Martinot was inspired by the accidental overlap of tones between military radio oscillators and wanted to create an instrument with the expressiveness of the cello. Fascinating. Apparently, yeah, that's uh, pretty cool. 
Yeah, apparently Radiohead. It appears in numerous film and television soundtracks. Johnny Greenwood of the English rock band Radiohead, maybe you've heard of them, is credited with bringing the Yondas to a larger modern audience. Uh, Daft Punk used it, and Damon Albarn. Very cool. Yeah, this guy was a this guy. I'm reading. He was a radio operator during World War One. That's really interesting to me. That that's like, yeah. Anyway, it's part of well, my this, whole World War One fascination. It's like got just got a new branch to it. I I am absolutely going to source this sound and put it on the After Dark. Uh, huh. But th- this is just another little, I guess, what would you call it? A footnote about just how in touch with the scene. <laughs> And yeah. with the the movement of things, Arto was, and he was uh, beloved by very many people. Later, after his time in Mexico, they would throw a to get him out of one of the asylums. Uh, they would throw a, kind of a like a fundraiser for him, mm-hmm. where they they rented a theater one night, and it was like everybody who's who in in Paris. Yes. Uh, and you know, he was appreciated by the by the avant-garde in his own time. Um even yeah. though one wonders if it ever emotionally reached him if he really right. do you know. In any event, um we're going to get to the drugs. So now uh it's 1936 and he decides to go to to Mexico. Uh and so I'm reading again now from Blows and Bombs and uh, this was a funny moment when I was preparing the show. I, uh, I was looking for the Mexico period. I had these books in front of me, really two biographies. I got Blows and Bombs and then the Critical Lives book. And I just opened it up. And on the first page that I opened it up to, this is what I read. The voyage to Mexico took almost a month. Arto traveled on a large cargo vessel, the SS Albertville, which left Antwerp on the 10th of January. He used the isolation of the sea crossing as an opportunity to to detox. Uh, This self-imposed regime was more successful given that he was in mid-ocean with no escape and no uh, chance to secure drugs um, than that imposed upon him four months earlier at the Henri Roussel Clinic. So he's in and out of clinics. He's in and out of... Uh, institutions his, most of his life. By the time he reached Mexico, Arto could declare that the man terribly hardened and black with air and light is starting to manifest himself. On the 25th of January, while the boat was docked for a short time at a small port on the eastern coast of the U.S., Arto wrote to Jean Pauhan in Paris, I believe that I've found the right title for my book. It will be The Theater and It's Double. Since if theater doubles life, life doubles the true theater. This title responds to all of the doubles of theater, which I believe I've found over so many years, metaphysics, plague, cruelty. And the double of theater is the real, which is not used by people today. Fascinating. Well, so now I want to get into the actual peyote trip that he would take. So let me find it. Uh, Let's see. Because he is seeking out peyote he's seeking out hallucinogenic drugs i mean that's Mm -hmm. part of the reason explicitly part of the reason he went to mexico yes 100 percent um all through the spring of 1936 arto tried to arrange his journey to visit an indian tribe he had chosen the tara maras who lived in the sierra madre region of northern mexico since he considered them to be maximally uncontaminated by european civilization so he's just gonna show up He wants, he's going to do some cultural appropriation maxing. 
Um, they were also one of the very few surviving tribes to base their rituals of magic and religion, uh, of magic and religion, they believe in many gods, on the drug peyote. Artaud's fascination with the peyote plant was directed towards the way in which the Taramuras used it to strengthen their mythological concepts of the body relationship with vital natural forces. Artaud had always relied upon opium as a way of constructing a barrier against the pain of his raw nerves. Now, he turned to peyote as a means of attempting to shatter all barriers of perception and as the instrument which could obliterate the limits of time and space from which his theater of cruelty spectacle had suffered. He was not the only writer of his generation to be drawn by the hallucinatory qualities of the drug. Henri Michaud and Aldous Huxley uh, explored the visionary states generated by mescaline, a derivative of peyote. The Taramuras, sorry, Walter Benjamin. Walter Benjamin as well. Mm -hmm. The Taramuras had an utter disregard for material possessions, which paralleled Artaud's own austerity. He owned no more than a suitcase of donated clothes and tattered manuscripts. And the Taramuras practiced the only kind of communism which Artaud could tolerate. Quoting, there exists in the north of Mexico a race of pure red Indians, the Taramuras. 40,000 people live there in a condition like that before the flood. They are a challenge to this world where people talk so much of progress only because they have lost all hope of progressing. This race, which you would expect to be physically degenerate, has for over 400 years resisted all that has come to attack it. Civilization, interbreeding, winter, war, wild animals, storm, and forest. They live naked in winter in mountains blocked by snow, contemptuous of all medical theories. Communism exists for this race through a feeling of spontaneous solidarity. Incredible though it may appear, the Taramura Indians live as though they were already dead. They do not see reality and draw magical powers from the contempt which they hold towards civilization. So he was, uh, he did spend time with them. Uh, he was deeply moved by his time. He was to rework what he had seen and experienced there throughout the rest of his life, completing his final text on the peyote dance only a fortnight before his death. He used their ritual cries and gestures as a source for the screams of refusal, which he performed in January 1948, for his recording to have done with the judgment of God, which we will uh, read a bit of in the after dark. He believed that the experiences he was to bring back from the Tarmira Mountains Tarahumara mountains would astound people in Paris. This would erase the humiliation which he had endured with the failure of the Sensi. He wrote to Pollen that I hope to be able to tell you many stunning things on my return, which will show to everybody that the world is double and triple. He also wanted to bring back weapons from his visit to the Tarahumaras to enable him to settle score in Paris. He declared to Boralt, I must take revenge against many people and many things. It is impossible for me not to take it. You must understand that I have a heavy heart and that there are some dirty insults which I cannot forget. I intend to return fairly soon, in around three or four months, end of September, beginning of October, and I hope to definitely be armed at that moment. <laughs> um, he had to ride five or six days on horseback to get there to an altitude of 6,000 uh, meters. And I want to get the I want to make sure I get some of the experience all right go ahead uh they, they, this they lived at 6,000 meters yeah wow that's yeah that's high <laughs> that's quite high interesting and he was he was having some agony uh over the lack of heroin 
to the point where he needed his guide kind of needed to, to really help him out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On the fifth day of the horseback riding, I believed I was entering hell. I was seeing red literally. And it seemed to me that the road was burning along the roadside. He saw groups of Indians masturbating and assumed that they were trying to bewitch him and induce him to turn back. The Tarah Humaras were hostile to all white people. Well, he did make it there and uh, they prepared the, the ritual. He had the backing of the government. Uh, the school teacher consented. One of the Indians had recently died. And so a special peyote rite could be held in his honor. Hmm. Over the next 12 years, Arto was to give many accounts of what he had witnessed during the all night ritual of the peyote dance. All of his accounts convey the impression of a fragmentary experience. He was certainly ill and exhausted at the time of the rite. The Indians believed that peyote broke time and gave them an infinite memory, but drinking the, the, the distilled peyote seems to have stopped Artaud's hallucinations rather than to have provoked new ones. At Rodez, uh, an asylum he would spend time at later, that's the one that they tried to get him out of, they got him out of, he would say that he was not given a sufficient quantity of peyote by the chief sorcerer to be certain what its effects upon him were. His involvement in the peyote dance was undercut by the sense that his huge exertions in reaching uh, the place had not been worth it, and he would not find a response to his vision of a revolutionary culture nor a cure to his pain. Uh, the Indians believed that whatever advantage an outsider such as Artaud might draw from the right would be something lost on them. Artaud's isolation at the heart of the right made him still more intensely aware of the frailties of his own body. Quoting, the physical hold was still there, this cataclysm which was my body, after 28 days of waiting, I had still not come back into myself. I should have said, left into myself, into myself, into this dislocated assemblage, this fragment of decayed geology. The right generated a feeling of great fervor in our toe, even great happiness, but it was also a time of sadness. He realized that his work had reached another dead end. So... Later, he would recall, in resorting to peyote, I didn't want to enter a new world, but to leave a false world. The Indian sorcerers screamed and gestured at Artaud as he drank the peyote, and then, as the right demanded, spat the residue into a hole in the ground. He was at the point of collapse. His perception of the right, the constant noise of cries, beatings, stampings, and the bloodshed of a sorcerer cut his own flesh, as a sorcerer cut his own flesh and dipped a horseshoe in the wound, oscillated between a belief that he was participating in an act of healing and that what he saw was apocalyptic. The sun was to be killed when it rose at the end of the night's dancing, and a perpetual black night would be instituted in a negative rite of fire and catastrophic destruction. Artaud wrote, no, the sun will not come back. <laughs> Woo! Wow. Maybe yeah, you should have stayed in Paris. Maybe yeah, this maybe. Uh, this may have exacerbated his uh, his mental break. What do you What do you think, yeah. Adam? Yeah. Mm, probably. I mean, the thing with psychedelics is they can't make you crazy they can um they can initiate the psych the, the psychological breakdown so you know for instance somebody who like smokes a joint and then goes nuts and jumps off a building they were probably already latently they were probably already had latent mental illness mm -hmm. um 
Now that said, I don't, I still don't, I've never believed that Artaud was necessarily schizophrenic. I just think he was, it's very hard to describe like what his actual, I, I think he defies diagnosis, which is probably why he hated psychoanalysis so much. But um, yeah, I, you know, it's one of those things. He goes to Mexico. He's probably looking to cure his opioid addiction. People do that now. They go, um, they go trip on ayahuasca and they come back and they're like, I'm clean. It's like, yeah, well, no shit, you're clean. You were fucking puking your guts out on psychedelic drugs for 10 days. And by the end of it, you had no more heroin left in your system. Um, I mean, I get it. I think psychedelic drugs can uh, rewire your brain to an extent, or at least make you have the, the main thing with psychedelic drugs that makes it make sense as a way of getting off drugs to me is the fact that like, when you're on psychedelic drugs, you start to see your own life from outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. So like, I remember even this happened to me once I was on acid during the time that I was a, a daily heroin user and I sort of left my, my own body sort of not really, it was all happening inside my mind, but I had these like sheer images of the lifestyle that I was living, the lying, the fucking always out of money and just like the physical act of like in putting a needle in my arm all the time. And uh, I, I felt a profound disgust and I had like a panic attack. But <laughs> that goes away. You know? right. The drugs wear off and then you're fucking still a junkie. And, and that's another funny thing about psychedelic drugs is like you're so fucked up when you're on them that any insight you might have kind of wears off when you feel relieved that it's finally over. Uh, it's sort of a utopian promise, but I do think nevertheless that uh, Arto's experience was profound and powerful in Mexico. Um, do I think it caused him to like spend the rest of his years in a mental institution? I'm not sure. I think he might've been on that track anyways. Well, and let's be real too about the year that this is happening. We're talking about 1936, 1937, and he's feeling, he's picking up vibrations of, of apocalypse. Well, yeah. Yeah, how yeah. wrong, how right. wrong right. was it? Yeah, World War II is right around the corner. Right. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're going to drop the bomb within, yeah. a, within a decade. Uh, we've still got plenty to cover, so buckle up okay. and uh, get ready for some more, some, some real weird turns here that you would not expect. So Arto returns from Mexico, and he started, uh, he picked up a relationship with a woman named Cecile Schrama. And he had been seeing her before, but it was, you know, obviously it wasn't that serious if he took all this time off to go to Mexico. Um, their affair was heated and volatile. As his life became more precarious, he, he relied increasingly upon her. And he wrote to her, I love you because you have revealed human happiness to me. But she was also a drug addict. Ah. Ah. And she was um, promiscuous. Our toes, and I'm reading from uh, Blows and Bombs, or um, yeah, Blows and Bombs. His idea of sexuality had been in turmoil since the journey to Mexico, and he was preoccupied with the notion of pure physical will. When they were in bed together at night, um, he he received a cane from his friend, and I assume this is the cane in question. So these all these things are coming together. His friend Renee Thomas gave him a walking stick of knotted wood that Artaud believed contained magical powers and was the most sacred 
sacred relic of the Irish church, the Bacal Isu or staff of Jesus. Uh, so he would put the cane between him and this woman at night so that she would like not touch him. So their bodies couldn't touch. So hmm. it's not, I don't think that's going to last, right? That doesn't no. seem like, uh, you know, she's going to stick around too long. So, uh, he, he accepted a, um, an invitation to go to Brussels where her parents lived. And it was a disaster because of course, uh, Cecile's father was the director of the Brussels tramway system, and he wanted guarantees that Artaud could support his daughter financially. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, those, were, no. those were not for, forthcoming. No, no. Uh, his well, perspective. Arto, um, sorry, Artaud's in his 40s at this point, right? 40. Yeah, 40. 40. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His prospective father in law was also confused when Arto asked him if his trams traveled all the way to the desert. <laughs> well, and so this is where Arto gave a famous lecture uh, on the 18th of May, and I believe we're in 38. Uh, I don't want to get it right. Let me see. Are we in 38, 37? Uh, so. Its subject had been announced as the decomposition of Paris, and it attracted a cultural, a cultured audience. But Artaud's lecture was to transform itself into another uh, of the outrageous invective events that stretched from his lecture on plague at the Sorbonne in 1933 to his final performance at the Vaux Colombier uh, in 1947. Uh, Artaud immediately announced that he had abandoned his prepared text. He's going off script. He then spoke about his journey to Mexico, his voice and gestures becoming increasingly hostile and violent. He also dealt with the effects of masturbation on the behavior of Jesuit priests, thereby causing a large part of his scandalized audience to leave the hall, as had happened at the Sorbonne four years previously. At the close of his lecture, Artaud screamed and told the remnants of his audience, in revealing all this to you, I have probably killed myself. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, the general outrage he created in Brussels was slight since the newspapers did not report the performance. They didn't even bother. Uh, but it compounded the dissatisfaction of Cecile Schrama's parents and the project of marriage was terminated. Uh, so <laughs> although yeah. he returned to Paris hurt and bewildered, he was also delighted at the lecture's impact upon the audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, Why? I love the bewildered. I mean, I yelled at them. Why were they leaving? Like, yeah, very. <laughs> I have to give this um, aside just for you, Brad. Um, after his return from Mexico, Arto had become fascinated by tarot cards ah. and the predictions he could make with them. An occultist named Manuel Cano de Castro instructed Arto in the workings of the tarot pack, although Arto's interpretations were always highly individual and served only to validate and intensify his uh, relentless preoc uh, preoccupation with imminent catastrophe. Again, he's not wrong. Yeah. While Arto's interest in the tarot was short-lived, it fed into the creation of the last text he wrote before his asylum internment, a poetic prophecy entitled The New Revelations of Being. The text was written around June 1937, soon after his break with Cecile. On one level, it recapitulated the collapse of their relationship as a narrative of terminal separation, treachery, exile, and apocalypse. 
uh, he projected his anger and hurt into all engulfing dimensions. According to his prophecy, he would emerge as a figure with authoritarian and revelatory power over the world. Here's what he write, or he wrote. I say what I have seen and what I believe, and whoever says that I have not seen what I have seen, I will now tear off his head. For I am an unpardonable brute, and it will be so until time, capital T, is no, no longer time. It is a true desperate one who is speaking to you and who never knew the happiness of being in the world until now that he has left this world and is absolutely separated from it. So our toe continues to be our toe. Well, now he has, um, uh, he has this staff uh, that he believes to be the most holy relic of Ireland. So what do you think he does next, uh, uh, Brad? Ah. Uh. Jeez. Well, he's got the whole, I mean, he's got a holy staff of Ireland. Does he go to I Yeah, he goes to Ireland. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? How much, how much English do you think uh, Arto spoke? Oh, zero. He didn't speak any English. Zero. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to read, so I've got a book called um, Arto 1937 Apocalypse, Letters from Ireland by Antonin Arto, translated and edited by Stephen Barber. And I'm going to read this new revelation of being. Uh, oh yeah, I like this. this. I, that's a that's a heavy title, man. That's a title that is either ironic or uh, I got to say, on the face of it, that it sounds like it has to be either ironic or delusional. So I'm interested I'm gonna, to hear this. I'm going to le read that and uh, his letter to Breton, and then we're going to talk briefly about his time uh, in in Ireland. Um, but maybe let, let, let me give a little context before I read it. So he has this staff. He travels to Ireland, landing at Cobb and traveling to Galway, possibly in an effort to return the staff. He spoke very little English and no Gaelic. He was unable to make himself understood. Uh, he would not have been admitted at Cobb, according to Irish docu government documents, except that he carried a letter of introduction from the Paris embassy. So he must have had some help getting that letter from the embassy. This is an artist. Uh, please uh, don't mug him. Mm. Uh, most of his trip was spent in a hotel room he was unable to pay for. So this is the kind of guy we're dealing with here. Uh, he was forcibly removed from the grounds of Milton House, a Jesuit community, when he refused to leave. Before deportation, he was briefly confined in the, the notorious Mountjoy prison. According to Irish government papers, he was deported as a destitute and undesirable alien. Uh, on his return trip uh, by ship, he believed he was being attacked by two crew members and he retaliated. He was put in a straitjacket and was un involuntarily retained by police uh, upon his return to France. So, yeah, yeah, kind of an abortive, an abortive trip to... Uh, to uh, Ireland there. What, what would we describe? I mean, what was his, I, I, okay. So I kind of understand why he went to Mexico. Why did he, why did he go to Ireland? Because of the, because of the staff. So he's got the staff. So he has the staff. And, and so it feels like it's time to go. But like, I think that he's closing I, some kind of magical circle. Something to that effect. Yeah. Yes. Okay. A lot of these letters from, and also like, I think just outright an increase in his schizophrenia uh, mm -hmm. and probably also running away from, uh, 
from the people he knows, okay. probably okay. feeling somewhat embarrassed. And then also that breakup. If you've ever had a, like, an extraordinary breakup and then maybe you you drink too much one night and you wake up and you've booked yourself an Airbnb in Mexico city for a month, something <laughs> yeah. like that. Okay. Um, okay. <clears throat> I wouldn't know anything about that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, let me see. I just want to make sure I get a little touch of this, uh, of what it was like in Ireland. Yeah. He wrote a lot of postcards to his friend. Um, yeah, this is quite funny. Arto remained lucid and curious during his stay on Inishmore he made the long walk several times to post letters at the island's post office in Kilrenan. He also consulted a medium there, although he had no money to spend in any case. He complained in a letter to Breton about how expensive he thought the island was, and he appealed to Pollan for money in order to extend his journey. A lot of these letters are asking for money. Uh, his friend was ill at the time and in no position to help him out, uh, as he had done during the journey to Mexico and in Paris. Uh, Artaud was still preoccupied with fire and destruction and wrote to Breton that this time the end will burn up the means. So he's, he's taking this real far out trip and the, you know, the kids would kind of fall, the kids from the city would kind of follow him. He was just like this oddball traveler who spoke no Gaelic, no English, uh, and just landed in their town. And while he was there, he wrote the new revelations of being or around this time. I don't know if it was in Paris but, or in, uh, uh, Ireland. I think so. I say what I have seen and what I believe, and whoever says I have not seen what I have seen, I will now tear off their head because I am a brute who cannot be forgiven, and it will be that way until time is no longer time. Neither heaven nor hell, if they exist, can, can combat that brutality that they forced onto me, perhaps in order that I would serve them. Who knows? In any, in any case, so I would tear myself away from them. That which is, I see with certainty. That which is not, I will make it myself if I have to. I have felt the void for a long time now, but for all that time, I have refused to throw myself into the void. I have been cowardly like everything that I see. I believed for all that time that I was refusing this world, but I know now that I was refusing the void because I know that this world does not exist and I know how it does not exist. What I suffered from until now is that I refused the void, the void that was already inside me. I know that I needed to be illuminated by the void, and I refuse to allow myself to be illuminated. If I have been made into a living pyre, it was in order to cure me from being in the world, and the world took everything away from me. I struggled to try to exist, to try to subjugate myself to the forms, to all of the forms by which the delirious illusion of being in the world screened reality. I no longer want to be someone subjugated to illusion, dead to the world, to that which constitutes the world for everyone else, fallen at last, fallen, propelled upwards in this void that I had been refusing. Now I have a body which undergoes the world and disgorges reality. I have had enough of this movement of the moon, which makes me call out for what I refuse and refuse what I call out for. I have to end it. I have to cut myself away from this world that a being in me, this being which I can no longer call out for, because if that being arrives, I will fall into the void that this being always refused. It's done. I really fell into the void from the exact moment when everything, everything that makes up this world just succeeded in rendering me desperate. Because you never know that you are no longer in this world until you see that you have now truly left it. The dead, the others are not separated. They are still revolving around their own dead bodies. 
And I know how the dead have been revolving around their own dead bodies for the exact duration of 33 centuries that my own double never stopped turning and no longer existing. I see what exists. I truly identified with that being, that being that ceased to exist. And that being has revealed everything to me. I knew it all already, but I could not say it. And if I can start to say it now, it is because I have left reality behind. It is a true desperate one who is speaking to you and who knows the happiness of being in the world only now that he has left the world behind. Now that he has has become absolutely separated from it, the dead, the others are not separated. They are still turning around their own dead bodies. I am not dead, but I am separated. I will therefore say what I have seen and what is. Wow. Oh man, that is a, there's a, uh, there's a lot of pain there. That's, that's, ah, that's really intense. It's impossible I mean, to, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you got to, there's something akin to a, there's something akin to a psychotic break there, right? You know, whether he's diagnosable or not. See, I'm, I've never been, okay, just as a counterpoint. Sure. Um, my friend Lionel Mounts, uh, one of the best artists, visual artists in New York right now, and also uh, a great thinker and uh, a voracious reader. Um, I have this documented in an interview that uh, me and Lionel did for Safety Propaganda it stems because in Lionel's last show, which was mostly sculpture, but there were also these great graphite drawings. There was one drawing and I go, oh shit, is that our toe? And he goes, no, that's my dad. I was like, oh shit. So like, um, but it was, I, I thought it was our toe at the end of his life. So then the piece became even more powerful. But um, in the interview, I mentioned the madness of our toe and Lionel responds, I don't actually think our toe was insane. What, what it was is he was working with the absolute limits of body and language. That, langu- that level of engagement, refusal, and antagonistic desperation read as insane only because he set himself to the impossible, denying the inadequacies of words and images, denying all stabilizing referent. The last and only thing he could do, ravaged by narcotics and literally fulminating psychiatry, sure, but absolutely coherent and intentioned. So even though uh, he's defying all sorts of psychological readings, there's still such intentionality with the way that he's, a, he's thinking and approaching his work. He's still, he's still attempting to, he's still attempting to excavate um, something that is kind of impossible. And that contradiction between still being a man and not being able to ever truly be what would Deleuze would call the body without organs is, I think, something that was very uh, defeating to him. And, and I think towards the end of his life, for sure, a lot of that anger that um, defined him as a person and as an artist, I think it, I think it was replaced by melancholy. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's an eventual translation that I think happens to a lot of us who've got a lot of anger, I think potentially. John Waters <laughs> said something so funny once, which was that, um, man, he goes, man, angry white boys are absolutely adorable in their thirties, but by the time they're in their forties, they seem a bit pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Present company excluded. Of course. <laughs> yeah. No, 
No, I like this. I mean, I, I prefer this. And I kind of take back what I said because I, I, I guess I don't like automatically uh, shunting everything into some kind of psychiatric definition because then you do lose any ability to, to interrogate what actually the content that's actually there in the places that they've actually gone. I mean, we're going to talk about Philip K. Dick in a couple of days. And actually, mm-hmm. while you were reading that, Kevin, I started thinking about some of the exegesis and the stuff that I read about his experiences, which aesthetically are quite different, but uh, in terms of the impact on him as a person and a person and his ability to function were very, very similar. It's just like now, like this thing happened to me um, and now I'm something else and I don't, I don't really know how to get, through this now in a, in a certain sense right and there's 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 an enlightenment aspect to it and there's also a you're getting tied up in a straitjacket aspect to it right to get hauled out of a hotel room a perfectly reasonable response to modernity yeah is to right want to be completely uh divorced from it yeah. and also being sensitive enough probably to see what was coming Right. To have a feeling of foreboding, an apocalyptic foreboding at this point, was sane and accurate. And, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. I just want to read a couple of um, excerpts from two letters from the Ireland period. I won't read too much, but I just want to give you a sense of where his mind is. So he wrote this letter to Andre Baton on the 5th of September. Dear friend, I am entrusting to you a magic spell that I am sending to Madame X. If she sees my handwriting, she may well not open the envelope. So write the address in a style that doesn't look like mine and do send it to her. I beg you. You are going to see once you have examined the magic spell that things are about to become serious and that this time I'm going to the very end of everything. Madame X's grave responsibility lies in having said that there are no more gods. That's the reason for my hatred of her, because there are still gods, even though God no longer exists. And ranged above gods, there is the unconscious criminal law of nature. And the gods and us, that is, we the gods, are collectively victims of that law. Paganism had everything right, but men who are always utter bastards betrayed the pagan truth. So Christ has returned in order to illuminate the pagan truth, which all the various Christian churches have been shitting on in an ignominious way. This Christ I'm talking about was a magician who fought with demons in the desert using a cane as his weapon and a trace of his blood remained imprinted on that cane. That trace disappears when you wipe it away with water, but then it comes back. Within certain men, there is a God who is coming back, and those men struggle against that God because he exhausts them in a material way. But gods always impose themselves in the end. These gods can never seize power because they never impose themselves in taking control of space or by their nature, except to destroy all power. You need to listen to the pagan truth. There is no God, but gods still exist. I think about this makes me think of the recent uh, BAP Tradcath kind of oh. uh, conflagration, right? We're fucking Tradcath. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me read one more letter before we uh, we give a, the Tradcast too hard a time. This is very interesting. This is to Ann Manson, a friend of his. Uh, also in September 1937. 
I now have to reveal to you, Anne, that in a few days, around 20, I will be speaking publicly in the name of God himself, because there is a secret to my life and in my birth, Anne. I will be speaking in the name of the second state of the universal manifestation, the state of the destruction of forms, and for the transformation of forms, and for the sublime in them. That means speaking for the state of the disappearance of being, and of the return to the absolute of all beings, which is known by Brahmanistic Hindus as Shiva, and who is incarnated in the person of Christ himself. I am going to be preaching about the return of Christ as he appeared in the catacombs, and that will bring about the return of the Christianism of the catacombs. The visible forms of Catholicism will then be raised on account of its idolatry, and the current Pope is going to be condemned to death as a traitor and for the crime of simony. I mean, <laughs> and this is what he's writing to his friends from Ireland. You imagine you get a letter like this, you go, yeah. ooh, man, <laughs> yeah. what is yeah. going on? And I, And I do think that this this potential for a marriage that existed and then that falling apart in this awful way in Brussels. I think he's, this is the beginning of the, whether or not we think he's quote unquote mad or not, you can sort of see that he's, um, he's slipping away somewhat uh, from the old Arto. Yeah. This is a new Arto. And that brings us to the final phase of his life. Uh, and uh, I think I think this episode will probably get into a fourth hour, which is very exciting. I'm glad. I, I you know these core episodes we just decided we got to do them. We got to make them long. We got to go. We got to go hard. We got to get the books. We got to try to give people the best coverage we can. And then I'm sure we'll probably have lots of darkroom episodes about our toe too. So yeah. moving along, he returned from Ireland uh, in a straitjacket. <laughs> and uh, the remainder of his life was largely spent in different asylums. Um, his best-known work was published at this time, The Theater and Its Double, contained two, the two manifestos of the Theater of Cruelty. He proposed a theater that was, in effect, a return to magic and ritual, and he sought to create a new the- theatrical language of totem and gesture, a language of space devoid of dialogue that would appeal to all the senses. Writing, words say little to the mind compared to space thundering with images and crammed with sounds. And uh, he considered uh, formal theaters with proscenium arches and playwrights with their scripts a hindrance to the magic of genuine ritual. Hmm. So in the interest of time... uh, It It was like ritual... Well, I mean, theater started as a ritual, right? In a way, I think. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, and here and here again, he's talking about returning to like pagan truths. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a an essay from is it in the theater and it's double no more masterpieces. I think it's really important that we read just a little bit of it. Yeah. Let me find this on page seventy four. I know I've been reading a lot, but hopefully it's not too much. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm just going to read a little bit of this essay called No More Masterpieces. One of the reasons for the asphyxiating atmosphere in which we live without possible escape or remedy and which we all share, even the most revolutionary among us, is our respect for what has been written, formulated, or painted, what has been given form, as if all expression were not at last exhausted, were not at a point where things must break apart if they are to start anew and begin fresh. We must 
have done with this idea of masterpieces reserved for a self-styled elite and not understood by the general public. The mind has no such restricted districts as those so often used for clandestine sexual encounters. Masterpieces of the past are good for the past. They are not good for us. We have the right to say what has been said and even what has not been said in a way that belongs to us, a way that is immediate and direct, corresponding to present modes of feeling and understandable to everyone. It is uh, idiotic to reproach the masses for having no sense of the sublime when the sublime is confused with one or another of its formal manifestations, which are moreover always defunct manifestations. And if, for example, a contemporary public does not understand Oedipus Rex, I shall make bold to say that it is the fault of Oedipus Rex and not of the public. This is just an arch populist statement and making mm-hmm. a real case for this, this immediate theater. And I also think predicting Warhol and predicting to a point social media and TikTok dances and all this stuff, this, this high-low distinction, he wants it removed. Yeah, certainly wants- the postmodernists, um, yeah. especially a lot of the L.A. artists like Paul McCarthy and Mike Kelly, they would cite Artaud a lot. Um, populism is a slippery slope too, though. So this is probably one of the only statements by Artaud that I might challenge a little bit. Um, but that's just because I'm an asshole. <laughs> like I have no interest in appealing to Philistines whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I mean, I, I struggle to get on board entirely. Like I under, I, I like the direction of it, and I think he's directionally right. But there is something that's like, I don't, I, I don't buy that it's Oedipus Rex's fault that people don't understand it. Not entirely. Right, no. like in some ways, maybe it is outmoded, and yeah, fine if a. Uh, but it's yeah, but but there's also something about actually putting forth an effort as the audience to 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 integrate some part of your psyche into a work. Right, it's like if it's just like oh that doesn't make sense to me, and you throw it away, like you're gonna throw away a lot of stuff. That absolutely, and also the away. idea that the only reason to. In- to engage with something is to quote unquote understand it. Well, you know? that's true. Yeah. You yeah. Know, like it, it can do something else. It's almost right. like the same, one of my fucking biggest hatreds of contemporary culture now is like, spoiler alert. Right. Like I don't fucking, you can spoil whatever <laughs> the fuck you want to me. I don't care. Like, like honestly, if I'm about to dive into something really dense and heady, mm-hmm. yeah. Knowing what's going to happen before reading it will actually help me. You know, right. and then right. and then I'm not caring so much about what happens, but right. the aesthetic experience of it. Well, I do, and and this is the thing. Well, yeah, there's that part of it, and then the part of it when it's maybe more understandable. Say it's something like you know, it's something on Netflix or something. As somebody who's studied screenwriting and studied writing and read, I basically know what's going to happen anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah, like the, the shape of it, I'm not in every detail, but I basically know where we're going. You're not really spoiling it for me. So, yeah. yeah. That guy in the movie theater who's crying when the Avengers miraculously run right. at the end. Right, right. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they won. Yeah, like, yeah. It's the last movie in the sequence, man. Yeah, what yeah. do you, th- you think is going to happen? So, anyway. 
Well, so Arteau would spend much of the remaining years of his life in these asylums. He did have that. Um, I mean, his book was pretty influential from the moment it came out. I think it was like a 400 print limited edition, but I imagine the 400 people who got their hands on it were the people you wanted to know in yeah. artistic circles in Paris. Um, we're going to come back to our, mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. It's like the first Velvet Underground album. Right. You know, only 10 people bought it, but they all started the, the greatest bands. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we're back to our toe, the Momo. And I have a few pages here that describe his opinion on asylums and doctors. Let me read here. Let me find it. Oh, I think I have my page numbers wrong. Let me see here. Yes. Okay. This is called Alienation and Black Magic. I may not read all of it, but I... Yeah. Insane asylums are conscious and premeditated receptacles of black magic. And it is not only that doctors encourage magic with their inopportune and hybrid therapies. It is how they use it. If there had been no doctors, there would never have been patients. No skeletons of the diseased, dead to butcher and flay. For it is through doctors and not through patients that society began. Those who live, live off the dead. And it is, it is likewise necessary that death live. And there is nothing like an insane asylum for gently incubating death and for keeping the dead in incubators. It began 4,000 years before Jesus Christ, this therapy of slow death. And modern medicine, an accomplice in this of the most sinister and crapulous magic, subjects its dead to electroshock or to insulin therapy, so as daily to thoroughly empty its stud farms of men of their egos and to expose them thus empty, thus fantastically available and empty to the obscene anatomical and atomic solicitations of the state called Bardo, delivery of the full kit for living to the demands of the non-ego. Bardo is the death throes in which the ego falls in a puddle, and there is an electroshock, a puddle state, through which everyone traumatized passes, and which causes him no longer at this moment to know, but to dreadfully and desperately misjudge what he was when he was himself, his own elf, his fife, uh, wife, life, tripe, damn it, and that. I went through it, and I won't forget it. The magic of electroshock drains a death rattle. It plunges the shock into that rattle with which we leave life. But the electroshocks of Bardo were never an experiment. And to death rattle in the electroshock of Bardo, as in the Bardo of electroshock, is to mangle an experiment sucked by the larvae of the non-ego. And that man will not recapture. In the midst of this palpitation and this respiration of all the others, who besieged the one who, as the Mexicans say, scraping to broach the bark with his grater, flows lawlessly from all sides. Sides Bribed medicine lies each time that it presents a patient cured by the electrical introspections of its method. As for me, I've seen only those who have been terrorized by the method, incapable of recovering their egos, who has gone through the electroshock of Bardo, and the Bardo of electroshock never climbs up again from its tenebrae, and life has slipped a notch. I've known there these moleculations breathe upon, breath upon breath of the death rattle of authentically agonizing people. 
what the Tara Humaras of Mexico call the spittle of the greater, the cinder of toothless coal, loss of a slap of the first euphoria that you had one day feeling yourself alive, swallowing and chewing. It is thus that electroshock like Bardo creates larvae. It turns all the patient's pulverized states, all the facts of his past into larvae, which are unusable in the present, yet which never cease besieging the present. Now I repeat, Bardo is death, and death is only a state of black magic which did not, which did not exist not so long ago. To thus create death artificially at as present day medicine attempts to do is to encourage a reflux of the nothingness, which has never been to anyone's benefit, but off which certain predestined human profiteers have been eating their fill for a long time, actually since a certain point in time, which one that point when it was necessary to choose between renouncing being a man and becoming an obvious madman. But what guarantee do the obvious madmen of this world have of being nursed by the authentically living. For Fadi, Ta'azor, Tau Elah, Aula, Atara, Elah. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's a truly radical insight. Indeed. Oof. Indeed. The name, of that, the name of that piece was again? Uh, well, this is from Arto the Momo. I think that's the final piece. And uh, that is called Alienation and black magic, alienation et magie noire. Yeah. Also the name of a very uh, magie noire, very popular perfume scent. All right. Okay. Good to know. Well, um, we are, yeah, we're cracking into the fourth hour. Go ahead, uh, go ahead, Adam. We'll be winding down shortly. Then do the after dark. Oh, no, that's all right. <laughs> okay all right we're winding down I'm just telling my uh my better half uh brad what do you think about our toe right now how do you think he's doing you know i how how, how is he at this point in his life do you think not i think he's not doing well i think he is having dramatic insights on the nature of himself reality people and and what we might call psychology, but I don't know that he's doing well um, in uh, there's this notion of uh, in like hermetic thought of the divine paradox, which is like you, you realize there's like that this isn't actually reality, but then the joke is that you still have to live in it. I don't think he's doing so great on you still have to live in it part would be yeah. my guess. That sounds right. Yeah. Well, let's bring it on home. So we're going to read this on the After Darker portion of this, his uh, play, which is sort of just a rant. It was meant to be a radio play called To Have Done With the Judgment of God. He recorded this in November of 1947. Uh, he, you know, it has screams, rants, vocal shudders. Uh, Vladimir Porsche, the director of French radio, shelved the work the day before its scheduled airing on the 2nd of February, 1948. Uh, hang on one second. Let's see here. This was partly for its scatological, anti-American, and anti-religious references and pronouncements, but also because of its general randomness with a cacophony of xylophonic sounds mixed with various percussion elements. 
<laughs> so, I mean, he was, he was really going for it. Um, as a result, Fernand Pouet, the director of dramatic and literary broadcasts for French radio, assembled a panel to consider the broadcast among approximately 50 artists, writers, musicians, and journalists present for a private listening on the 5th of February were Jean Cocteau, Paul Elouard, Raymond Cunois, Baral, Claire, Paulin, Nadeau. So just a lot of, a lot of names here. Um, and he refused to broadcast it, the Porsche fellow, even though the panel were unanimously in favor of the work. <laughs> um, <laughs> He left his job and the show uh, was not heard again until the 23rd of February, 1948 at a private performance um, in a theater. The work's first public broadcast would not take place until the July 8th in 1964 when the LA based public radio station KPFK played an illegal copy provided by the artist Jean-Jacques Lebel. The first French radio broadcast uh, occurred 20 years after its original production. So we're looking at a man who predicted, in a way, the apocalypse of, of World War II, how it reflected his own personal uh, angst is too weak a word, alienation, his own personal dissocia, his own personal agony at the world and the state of the world, all of which is perfectly reasonable none of which is in fact mad uh having having been a young man to see what happened at, in world war 1 to have an inkling of what might have come what what might be coming uh i'm going to read one of his final poems from momo but we're coming up to his death let me see i may have already read it yeah i'm going to read it again i read it at the beginning <laughs> A blank page to separate the text of the book, which is finished from all the swarming of Bardo, which appeared in the limbo of electroshock. And in this limbo, a special typography, which is there to abject God, to background the verbal words to which one wanted to attribute a special value. So maybe that sounds different now that we've spent three hours with our toe. Yeah, yeah. Um, in January of 1948, he was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. He died shortly afterwards on the 4th of March at, in a psychiatric clinic uh, in Ivry-sur-Seine, a, a commune on the southeastern suburbs of Paris. I'm going to read one final thing from Blows and Bombs about his death, which is quite germane uh, because of how, how he died. Uh, let me find it. So Artaud's sister, Marie Ange, visited him on the afternoon of Tuesday, the 2nd of March. The following day, he went to see Paul Thevenin in Sherrington and surprised her by drawing up a testament and trusting her with the publication of all his books. He had recently been declaring that he would no longer write, that he had written everything and had finished. But he kept on writing to the last hours of his life. His final fragment views his impending death as a hard and finally lost combat and as a social, religious, and sexual swallowing. And they have pushed me over into death, there where I ceaselessly eat cock, anus, and caca at all my meals, all those of the cross. Uh, he left Paul Thevenin's apartment in the afternoon and returned to Ivry. The weather was very cold with spring snow on the ground. He died at dawn on the following day, the 4th of March, 1948, alone in his pavilion, seated at the foot of his bed, holding his shoe. 
Arthur Adamov wrote Suicide of Antonin Artaud by Chloral, the massive weapon. Artaud had been taking great amounts of chloral, I think it's chloral hydrate, mm-hmm. in the last weeks of his life, but it is by no means certain that he purposely took a lethal dose. The toxic levels of chloral can vary enormously. He may well have intended to keep fighting to the last moment, but certainly Artaud felt that he had now accomplished all he could and that his work had been safely entrusted. Paul Thevenin believed that Artaud died how he probably how and probably when he wanted. His body did not burst into unforgettable fragments at death, but his work did. The gardener at the clinic found Artaud's body when he brought his breakfast in the morning, and the boilerman went to the Ivory Town Hall to notify the authorities that Artaud had died. Mm. Yeah. There was a four-day vigil to keep away the rats. The, they wanted a Catholic service, but this Paul Hahn fellow. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Probably not. Paul Hahn told Trad calf service. <laughs> he ended up he ended up getting a civil burial burial because of the um uh because of the potential of suicide. And uh a lot of the money that they had raised for him at that event that I mentioned was unspent. Yeah. And they arranged that to be divided among his most um, needy friends. And it was eventually, the body was eventually moved to the family tomb in Marseille. And that is the life and work with Adam Lehrer, the great Adam Lehrer of Antony Artaud. That was amazing. Oh, yeah. That was amazing. And also... uh, you know, towards the end of his life there, that's the um, part of his life that I fictionalized. Uh, and interestingly enough, Jacques Prevel was kind of his like, they were hanging out every single day. He'd bring, they had kind of a transactional friendship. You know, Prevel would bring him his morphine and they'd go walk around together. But at the same time, I think a real friendship kind of formed between the two men. Um, and Prevel who was hoping, of course, that Artaud could help him with his poetry career, uh, died before Artaud of consumption. And he was about 20 years younger. Whoa. Wow. And actually, yeah. you know, Artaud was kind of a, um, I wouldn't say he's a Puritan, but he was a bit prudish about sex. This is another one of my favorite, as we've learned, you know, with the Anais Nin, et cetera. Travel yeah. had a very interesting sexual life. He lived upstairs with his wife and his daughter. And then downstairs, he had his side piece. So sometimes Prevel would be like, okay, honey, I'm going downstairs. And he would go and spend the night and fuck his mistress. Wow. Artaud found this to be utterly contemptible. And he said, (laughs) his mistress was named Janie. He said, Janie has very dark energy. She's going to bring you down. And Artel loved his wife and his wife loved Artel. Mm. You know, she would make him dinner. So Artel was like very skittish about his friend's uh, sex habits. Isn't that interesting? A guy, yeah, who you, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Because you almost think of him as being, uh, I don't want to say immoral, but like, like a libertine. beyond morality in a way. Right. Yeah, he's like, I mean, I, he's so kind of weird about sex. Like, he's, he's sort of proto-incel, or maybe yeah. vol-cell. He's like vol- voluntarily yeah. celibate. Yeah. So I yeah. think men that did have healthy libidos 
Like, Arto probably would have hated me because I'm, like, incurably horny, like, all the fucking time. <laughs> He'd be like, you have a dark energy, Adam. You're like, I'm just trying to get laid. I don't really think it's yeah. that big a deal. I don't think yeah. demons have to come into this, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're talking about paganism, Arto. Come on. Chill out, bro. I This name kept coming up, so I wanted to kind of – uh, give a footnote at the end of this episode, this Jean Paul Hahn fellow, we didn't really introduce him, but the name came up a lot. He was a writer and the director of the NRF from 25 to 40 and then from 46 to 68. So he was uh, obviously important in Artaud's life. Uh, he was not Jacques Riviere, right? The, the person that Arto was, was, had that first correspondence with, but he was the, he was the guy who took over that important journal. And so obviously had a really, um, a big part of, uh, um, yeah, a big part of Arto's life. Author Anne Disclose revealed that she had written the novel Story of O as a series of love letters to Paul Hahn who had admired the work of the Marquis de Sade. So this fellow, his name came up a bunch of the episodes. So I wanted yeah. to get that. But uh, we always close uh, with a question. But before we do, I'm going to ask you both this question. First, Brad, uh, I'm going to, again, pitch the After Dark episode. We're going to go for another 30 minutes. We're going to look at, to have done with the judgment of God. We're going to talk about one of Arto's magic spells to Hitler. And we're going to listen to some of this uh, proto-theremin instrument. All on the After Dark, only for the Patreon subscribers. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. If you like the show, if you're listening to multiple episodes, if you made it this far in the Arto episode, chuck us a little money. It adds up. Uh, Brad and I are going to meet later this year in Austin, Texas, just to to hang out. We're going to, I think, Brad, are we going to do the Mc, McMurtry episode there? I think we are. I think we I think might we do that episode on McMurtry, something like yeah. that. Before yeah. we do the question, Adam, thank you so much for your contribution and your time. Can you tell people how to find you? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing, what you got going on. Oh, please. sure. Uh, safetypropaganda.substack.com, our substack, our our podcast is System of Systems by Safety Propaganda, which is systemofsystems.patreon.com. Um, and pay the man. Uh, yeah, and pay me. And I have two book deals at the moment. Excellent, so man. the Safety Propaganda Manifesto, which is sort of my uh, theater in the plague, my uh, outline of the, my personal aesthetic theory, the crypto transgressive theory. It's 200 bullet points of um, art history, historical references, anecdotes, concepts, etc. that shape my thinking. And then I'm working on a very long novel that I just got a contract with uh, Philip Best, Austin based publishing company, ah. Amphetamine Sulfate. Nice. Awesome. So I'm like wheeling it. And I think after that, I'm going to fucking retire. Like yeah, three, three, three books in two years that I'm happy with. After that, I'm going to get a normal job. I'm going to cut my hair. I'm going to hide all my tattoos. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Get one of those, uh, those jobs where you can like sit in the pool. You got to be a chick for that, I think. But my, my dad's always like, Adam, you know, you're, you're so fucking smart. How the hell? I, you know, 
yeah. you can get hired anywhere. And I'm like, dad, no, I really can't. Like, <laughs> like if I was less smart and interesting, I'd probably have a better, <laughs> more employable possibilities, but I'm, I'm, I'm too fucked in that regard. Well, then you got no choice. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, kind of yeah. liberating in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> All right. So Kevin, you're at, wait, you I, I got to ask you, I'm asking you, I've already put in yeah. the work. And of course, Adam, you were a great guest for this. You covered this some things that I, where I had little black holes and I really appreciate your contributions. No a lot problem, of fun. Man. We're going to go for Happy another three minutes here. after this. Awesome, man. It's really great. Uh, Brad, uh, what is Antonine Artaud doing today? Were he alive? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of other interesting drugs that have come along since his day that he probably would have tried some of them. Um, and I'd be interested in see what his take was on that. Uh, I, I think, like you said, Kevin, I think he would find a, a lot of this stuff unsurprising that is going on. I think he'd be a hell of a Twitter follow. You know, uh, Maybe he wouldn't be posting all that often, but when he did, it would be gold. Um, yeah, until they suspend him for a week. Right. Yeah. right. See, I disagree. I think he'd be tweeting literally endlessly. Is like, that I don't right? think Just, he'd be able to stop. Yeah. That'd be like his main, his main immediacy activity. Of communication. That's a yeah. good point. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. And yeah, you think like maybe his issues with his sort of friction with language itself might break down if he can broadcast to everyone simultaneously, right? It might shift gears for him somehow um i don't think he would have ever gotten to a point where his you know his plays and productions were broadly produced or seen i just don't see it having that kind of appeal and it's not because it's not a judgment on it at all like i would want to see this stuff but i just don't see it happening i see a lot of things like his radio play and what was it the the shelly play Sensi, I think. It was yeah, called. Sensi. Yeah, I, I think a lot of these sort of striking and innovative and sort of randomized almost things he would try to put together. And every time you'd have a bunch of people who knew what they were seeing, who loved it, and people who were in charge of distributing it going, what is this? So I don't think any of that stuff would really come to the surface in yeah. anything other than a sort of a niche way. Um, but yeah. That's more or less what he'd be up to. What do you think, opinion? Adam? Do you agree with Brad? What do you What do you think he'd be I up to? I agree with the fact that he'd be shit posting, but I think he'd be shit posting endlessly, and I, like I think his knack for it would be rivaling the best in the business. We're talking Kanye, Bap, Mr. Yeah. Jack Mason of the Perfume Nationalist, and of course Donald Trump. And I also think Arto would have been incredibly enthusiastic about the Trump movement because it was a, a sort of political movement that was less bound to politics than it sort of was a spiritual revolution, if you will, a sort of pure antagonism. And it was very, it was based in laughter, it was based in transgression, etc. He'd have absolutely no place in academia. He might be able to get a couple films made. Like I could see him almost as a Vincent Gallo-esque figure where he made a couple great low-budget films that everybody loves and then was considered too difficult to work with. Uh, and then his career gets shattered. I think he wouldn't be writing any books 
because the speed of the technological landscape would absolutely eradicate. I mean, the way with which he processed information was so rapid anyways, I don't think he could sit down and do long form projects. I think tweeting would be the main thing. Um, I think he might do with Substack, but I'm not sure. And I think um, occasionally small edgelordy galleries in New York would do their sort of like pick me exhibitions of his drawings and whatnot. And I think, um, I think he would have weird love affairs with people like Ozzy Alia Banks and Julia Fox. Uh, that everybody talked about, but no one could ever quite figure out. <laughs> Actually, funny enough, when I was still writing, when I was still kind of trying to figure out like the form of how communions would be, I was playing around with putting historical figures in like contemporary fiction scenarios. And in one of them, it's probably really bad. I should dig it out, but it was Artaud, uh was like a famous shit poster, and he, he was like fucking Azealia Banks. And uh, I had become sort of like a internet influencer. <laughs> Maybe I'll send it to you so you can like yeah, it be, yeah, yeah. It sounds like you answered the question. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Great answer, Adam. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. This is Art of Darkness, artofdarkpod.com, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. I really enjoy doing this. I really enjoy prepping it. I have been yeah. a devil you guys of our toes. Hmm. You guys did great. You guys, that was mm. awesome. Thank you. Spiritually for a long time. So for me, this this felt uh, just right. It was an episode that I wanted to do. And as with so many of these these great artists, it's it's their world. We just live in it. Even though Arto felt like he wasn't of the world, he, with his work and his writing, he was able to bring in a vision, which I think was prescient, somehow prescient and prescriptive at the same time. If you're an artist working in, I think, almost any medium, you owe it to yourself to read the theater and its double, to to read the quality of the writing. The writing is outstanding. It's not a madman writing these essays, uh, whatever that word means. Um, and take inspiration from it. And, and, and you know, and, and again, this beautiful quote, um, actors are athletes of the heart. What a tremendous um, sentiment. I'm fairly sure that's him. I want to make sure it's right because <laughs> I don't want to close uh, yeah, athletes of the heart. Any final words? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. The actor is an athlete of the heart. What a great quote. What an understanding of what an actor does. Watch his performance of uh, uh, in, in uh, Joan of Arc, the passion of Joan of Arc. Look at him. Watch his face. Look at the pathos that he that he presents and and don't doubt that he is um, feeling it. Right. This isn't a LARP. It's he's not faking it. This is real. And uh, and of course he was a man not not of the world. Adam, any any final word on our toe? No, but I just thought of something about a point, if that's if that applies to actors, how that would apply to pornographic actors. They're, <laughs> they're athletes of the cop. Yeah, well, that's it's true. Yeah, yeah Arto would appreciate that yeah. as a closing yeah. closing yeah. number. We're not gonna we're not gonna top that, are we? <laughs> uh, but we're gonna be back. We're gonna be back in a few minutes to do the after dark for our beloved Patreon subscribers. Please do consider supporting the show. You know who we are. You know what we do. This is a core episode. 
Brad, you're doing PKD in a few days, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, two days with uh, the great Aldous Asterion's coming back. So it should be fun. Artofdarkpod.com. Later. See y'all later. See you in a few minutes for the After Dark. All right. Let's get this uh, rendered and come right back. Yeah, I feel like I need to just give a... <laughs> <laughs> crazy our toast scream. Just screw up the entire recording. <laughs>